Hello and welcome to the Total Quidditch podcast, a place where we talk to the people, make Quidditch what it is, and give them an opportunity to share their stories and experiences of the sport. I'm Fraser and I'll be your host. In the words of Luke Derrick, it's been a wild ride this fourth series in which we've pushed the boundaries further than before in terms of what this podcast can deliver for the Quidditch community. So in that, we'll be finishing the series by recording a new type of episode. Alongside our people-focused episodes and our tournament previews and reviews, we'll be experimenting more with topic-based episodes like our Name of the Game episode from earlier this series. In these particular episodes, we'll be speaking with knowledgeable members of the Quidditch community on a topic relevant to the sport, with the aim of sharing insights and applying some of these ideas to what we do within Quidditch. Whether you're part of a new and developing university team, or you're part of a community team or a national squad, we want these episodes to be for everyone. A chance to learn actionable tips to improve your playing experience in the sport and your experience as a member of the Quidditch community. For all the UK folks, imagine the salt mine with less bitterness and grumbling, and you're more or less there. To kick us off, our guest today is actually one of the former Salt Mine hosts and someone who has graced us with their presence twice already on the Total Quidditch podcast. Together, we'll be discussing the topic of team culture, what it is, how we can make it and positively impact the team cultures we are involved in, and how to make everyone in your team feel valuable in the pursuit of a common goal. Recording for the first time in the pod, all the way from his new base in Shenzhen, China. It's Jay Holmes. Welcome back, mate. Hello, Fraser. Thank you for having me. Um, it's it's good to see I've not been blacklisted uh, from all Quidditch <laughs> involvement uh, just yet. Yeah, I can. Uh, I think the connection's not going to be great all the way from uh, the Great Firewall of China, uh, but hopefully we'll be able to to smash out a, a decent chat. We we, we will per- we will persevere. Um, and for for those of you listening to this episode who don't know who Jay is. Um, yeah, that's that's a bit odd. Most people should know who Jay is by this point. But if you don't, uh, we recorded an excellent episode in the first series. Lots of really open and honest discussion. And in many ways, I think one of our more powerful episodes. So I'd 100% check that out if you want to know more about Jay and his background as a player, coach, and a leader in the sport. Yeah, um, so obviously you're in China now. Um, what's that been like? We've not really... We have, this is the first time we've had you on the pod since you moved. So, yeah, how's that all going for you? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty decent. I've swapped the broomstick uh, for an egg-shaped ball full-time now. So I'm president of the Shenzhen Pirates Rugby Club uh, while I'm out here, which is uh, pretty exciting. You know, a lot of challenges similar to Quidditch and a lot of challenges that are, are very uh, vastly different. Um, but it's my first time really only engaging with Quidditch as a spectator. I was up at one o'clock in the morning, you know, watching BQC semi-final and the final um, and, you know, getting on the Discord, uh, even though I'm an old man now for Quidditch, trying to work that out and just trying to get involved with the conversation. Uh, but it's been really strange, uh, like watching Raptors from afar, watching Team England from afar. Um, it's It's helped me clear up uh, some of my thoughts about Quidditch, um, but I, I knew I was going to miss it, but I really didn't realise quite how much uh, I was going to miss it. Like, I looked like a child at Christmas uh, watching BQC. I was like sitting on my bed, like, <laughs> jumping up and down, celebrating and cheering the girls and stuff like that. So, 
yeah, it's strange. It's strange to be away, but you know, rugby's a, a whole new challenge. Um, I, I distinctly remember someone on a Facebook thread saying, you know, you're at the top of the game. Uh, if you were that bothered about growth, you'd go and do it in another sport. Uh, so, <laughs> so here I am. Here I am doing it in another sport. But it's good to be back and uh, talking some Quidditch. Yeah, definitely. I can really relate to that from my time away in Spain. Um, just kind of feeling that separation and kind of wanting to be there, but also quite happy with sort of your new life and what you're up to. Um, yeah. That's really really encouraging to hear overall the part barmy kind of thinks it was like um you know in the early kind of marvel films where thanos is kind of watching from afar <laughs> and he's kind of just like silently there watching judging and then he makes his grand entrance at some point so that, that, that'll be world cup i'll be turning up with my <laughs> infinity gauntlet at world cup so we will see we will see there you go definitely looking forward to to that infinity war as it as it arrives um anyway let, let's get on topic with the today's episode all about team culture um so th- this is quite i don't know it's quite a tricky thing to start with i had so many questions um when i was preparing for this episode but i think the most appropriate place to start is just defining what we're talking about so for you what is team culture and why is it important yeah, I think it is. You, you're bang on. It's a really hard thing to define. Um, and it's something that I sort of to and fro uh, about exactly what I meant when I said culture. Uh, but in the base sense, uh, culture is, you know, the behaviour and beliefs that you want your team to accept. Um, and it's also the behaviour and beliefs that you don't want your team uh, to accept. Um, and that that comes down to what culture is like. Uh, culture everything has has culture um like animals have culture bees have culture uh humans have had culture you know since we could interact um so it's basically just a set of values a set of rules um and a set of ideas that that you want a group of people to accept and buy into um and you do that obviously in lots of different ways you have your culture at work you have your culture in sport uh but for me it just comes down to what does everyone agree uh, that we're trying to do and how does everyone agree that we're going to try to achieve it okay that's quite a neat summary there i'd say and uh yeah like culture i think for me is one of those things that, that's everywhere like mm. it's in the way you behave obviously as a massive part of it it's the way think things are things appear right like, way people dress the the quality of equipment um what you say to each other obviously is a massive thing um so it's it's in everything we see and everything we do so definitely a massive part of uh, a team environment yeah for me like sports culture is just every like minutia of social interaction boiled down to its like purest form uh because you can't really uh hide in sport and you can't waste time in sport uh so you really speed run uh your culture on pitch uh, and off the pitch. Um, the reason it's so important to me uh, is a base level is like, obviously, if people agree with a the culture, they're going to buy into it. Um, and if you look at like the hierarchy of needs for a person, you can look at satisfaction, happiness, safety, all of that revolves around culture um, at a sports level. 
but the other reason that culture is so important is uh, if you get your culture quote unquote right. Um, I don't like the term right culture. Um, I think what people mean is if everyone agrees uh, with the culture that you're purporting, uh, people are a lot more likely uh, to commit more to a result and commit more to, to success um, because culture is all about creating an environment that people want to be in uh, at the end of the day. Um, and you're only going to get the best out of people uh, if they want to be there uh, and if they want to work towards the goal. Um, like you've, you've all got to row the boat in the same direction uh, and people are a lot more willing to do that if they're happy sitting in the boat. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, def definitely agree with that. Um, you mentioned that like there's no kind of right culture. Uh, mm. On to my next question, uh, which I'm sure you're going to have a, a bit of a backlash against now. Um, so th this question is like what makes a good team culture as opposed to a bad one are there like certain traits that we consider good and there are certain traits we consider bad uh, yeah like I think there's there's no such thing as a right culture but there's definitely bad culture and there's bad cultural practices and there's good cultural practices um, like any good culture uh, revolves around honesty um, it's something I'm pretty big on in all the teams I'm part of. Honesty to share opinions, um, honesty, you know, to share when you disagree with something or when something upsets you. Uh, but also integrity. I think integrity is pretty key uh, in, in any culture. You know, you've got to you've got to live up to the values uh, that you're saying. Like it always did my head in at Quidditch where a leader or someone would say, you know, come on, everyone. We all need to be putting in the maximum effort. And then you watch them and you're like, you're, you're not trying your hardest. You're not trying your hardest at all. And then people aren't going to follow you. Like you've got to set the standard. And that's where integrity is important. Um, everyone's got to have that integrity and that honesty. Um, when it comes to things like bad culture, uh, that's where you look at like toxic masculinity and toxic socialization and avert criticism. Uh, without being able to give people feedback correctly. And then even like the most toxic culture you're looking at, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, religious intolerance, things like that. And a lot of people think stuff like that is saying like, I don't want that guy on my team because he's gay. That isn't what toxic culture is. Toxic culture is someone making a joke about someone being homosexual. And even if they disagree with it, not calling them out on it because uh, I've, I've had it uh, the, in the past where someone said something and it isn't about making the big fanfare in front of everyone uh, that, you know, you go, well, you shouldn't say that. But it is about calling it out and it doesn't just have to be the leader. I think it's good to try and create a culture where everyone feels like they can say, uh, well, actually, I don't agree with that. And I've had it. I've had to be the one to say you're out of line. And I've had people say to me, never anything, you know, homophobic, transphobic or anything like that, just for clarity. Uh, but I've had people say, like, the way you went around saying that, uh, I disagree with. I, I don't think that was the best thing for the team. And that's good culture. You know, that's a positive cultural step that someone like with, without being too egotistical, someone of my stature can say something and a player is comfortable enough to say to me, You've gone about that the wrong way. I might disagree with them. I might say, well, actually, I think that's what the team needed. But good culture is is based on 
that openness and that honesty and that integrity. Um, a lot of people sort of really overthink uh, what they're trying to achieve culturally. Uh, but it is just, if you can get everyone to just be upfront with what they think uh, and what they feel and their emotions in a situation, uh, that, that's half the battle. Uh, because a lot of people don't like rocking the boat. Uh, like the average person doesn't want to be seen to to be a nuisance or a disturbance to someone in charge. Uh, but a good culture means someone can say, well, actually, I'm going to hold my hand up and say, you know, I disagree with this uh, for a good reason. Um, and for me, that's why culture is so important, because if you can nail that, that then everything else comes fairly naturally. Yeah, definitely. Like it can really kind of plug those gaps that maybe you might have certainly the star quality, but yeah, by having this environment in place, you can al allow sort of your lesser gifted players and less mm. gifted people with an environment to succeed as well. A hundred percent. And like as you're saying there, like honesty and integrity, I think are, are massive. And like as you're talking about there, people calling out people in charge, whatever, like for some people that might be really kind of uh confrontational but mm. yeah it's it's kind of understanding that there's a respect underlining that you're, you're all there for comfort you all want to succeed and if you kind of see oh maybe what this leader's doing isn't helping us towards our goal having yeah. the the confidence and the the environment in which they feel they're able to speak up without getting shot down yeah, 100%. And like respect is such a huge part of it. And respect is a really hard line uh, to toe uh, in a club sport because uh, there's always a hierarchy, um, not just in Quidditch, but in every team. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to get onto people's roles within a team, but there's always a hierarchy of respect of sort of, you know, the top dogs um, of your team and like how they should be respected and treated and sometimes that is preferential treatment um and that's not necessarily a bad thing like at every club you're always going to show a lot more courtesy to the people at the top um i i think that's just part of it naturally um like i remember i remember it like there was a, one of my raptor trainings when i was captain and you always get it where like the new person turns up uh feeling like they've got got something to prove um and you know they're maybe not quite understanding the vibe and the culture and the hierarchy and uh, like i was keeping and uh, they were in a one-on-one -on -one and it was only training and i knew i was going to concede so i sort of went to contest the shot um and they could have just stepped me and scored but they like went up dunked on me made like a huge like deal out of it and I was like, calm, calm down, big fella. Like, we get it. We get it. You got sad approved, but like, you, it's all good. You don't, you don't need to be doing that here. Um, and part of it is like, you don't need to be doing that to me, mate. Like, no one thinks you're the man because you've dumped on me. Like, it's all good. It's all good. And I think like things like that in your culture, um, like people understanding their place within a team uh, is really important uh, because you always get it with new players to a team. You know, you want to be careful when you're speaking up because while you think you might be being helpful, maybe you're putting someone's nose out of joint. Um, and I know with Raptors and like teams like that, like I, I a phrase I've said a lot is 
I definitely have the advantage of being me. Um, and I know I'm right a lot of the time. Uh, but, you know, sometimes with clubs, you sort of need to gauge the the culture of like respect and the hierarchy. I think it's really, really important um, just so that like, you know, where you fit into a culture and fit into a team when you first arrive. Yeah, definitely. There's like a lot of stuff that is kind of subconscious and kind of things that an individual has to work out. And there's also kind of more mm. explicit stuff in terms of rules and sort of expected conventions within a team as well. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a mix of those things going on in any one environment. Yeah, so obviously we kind of talked about, I guess, kind of some good traits within team culture and also some bad ones, like the, the obvious things sort of racism, sexism, homophobia, toxic masculinity, all the kind of, I guess, more obvious stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, just like now kind of looking at creation of these cultures um, and it comes down to that classic societal question of nature versus nurture so like within team cultures should culture be made naturally or does it need to be nurtured or do you reckon it's a mixture of both um it's it's definitely a mixture of both i think like every single person brings their own culture with them uh, their own expectations their own values um, what they're willing to put up with, what they're not willing to put up with. Um, I think if you've got like a group of strangers, uh, so say I start a team with 20 strangers, you've sort of got let, to let some of the culture come out naturally. Um, you've got to try and understand, you know, what people are there for, what are their aims, um, but also what's their background. Um you know, there are people that maybe aren't quite as competitive, aren't quite as driven, um, you know, different economic and social backgrounds all uh, makes a difference with how we approach sport, um, how inquisitive we are, how willing we are to try and commit and, you know, our relationship with failure and things like that. Uh, so all of that you work out fairly naturally just by talking to people um, like you can work out a fair amount of someone's anxieties, their confidences uh, in, in five minutes, if you know what you're looking for. Uh, but at the same time, I do think culture needs to be cultivated by an individual or a small group uh, just to set the standards of, of behaviour. Um, and I always think it's important for one person to say, you know, overtly or not as overtly, this is what we're going to accept uh, and this is what we're not going to accept. Um, and obviously the things like racism, homophobia, sexism, uh, are the worst end of, of, you know, toxic culture. Uh, but it's also things like packing up the equipment at the end of the day. Uh, that's, that's a part of positive culture. Um, it's something I always looked for in new players when they joined Raptors, uh, was who, who helped pick up the cones, uh, after a drill or at the end of the day. Uh, I think things like that tell a lot about a person, you know, who, who's offering to share their water in obviously non-COVID times, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, and, you know, I mean, who, in COVID times, there's probably the opposite, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But like, who's going up and, and talking to their teammates or just worrying about themselves? Like, things like that is everything that you start to to look out for um, with with your culture. Uh, and that stuff you can cultivate. Um, like nature can only take you so far, uh, as as I found out. 
you know, playing sport with, with recovery and, you know, your natural frame and, and your general mindset. Uh, but it's down to someone else to sort of, you know, show you the path. And then it's on that person whether they follow it or not. And not everyone can. I've seen it in Raptors, you know, for, for years and years and years. There, there are some people that, you know, they can be part of the culture, but they don't live the culture. They don't fully buy into it. Um, and that's that sport for the most part. Um, but you're just trying to get someone to buy in as much as you can. And, and that is nurture. Um, that is creation. That is showing someone why they should believe in something um, and hoping they join you for the ride. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty good answer there overall. I like from the way I see it, it is that mixture of both the nature initially kind of seeing what you've got, mm. how people naturally behave, what are their natural tendencies within a group. Um, and then, yeah, you've got to harness that and organize it and formalize it. Um, which yeah. is where the nurture comes in. Um, and, you, and you look at um, a lot of other sports teams and they tend to create sort of a, a set of values or a set of rules. Um, I was reading an example about the England rugby team under Clive Woodward, where they all sat down in the room and went, what, what, is what is valuable to us? What is important? And they came up with the idea of punctuality, being on time, being early for things. Um, so whenever they... They turned up early for something. It was called Lombardi time after the, the famous yeah. American football yeah, coach. Yeah, yeah. So this concept of Lombardi time became really important to this group. And if people weren't kind of sticking to this concept, then, well, they weren't exactly sort of, as we were talking about, um, rowing in the same direction as everyone else. Yeah. So can you think of any experiences, whether that's within Quidditch or whether in, it's in the other sports you do, where... A, a team has clearly drawn that line in the sand and gone, right, this is what we expect. And this is a key value of ours that we want to define. Yeah. So it was actually one of the, the first things I did with Team England uh, when I formally took over as head coach. Uh, is we, I spoke about it in the, the other episode a little bit, but we had a, an indoor session and we basically said, like, why are we here? What are we trying to do? And how are we going to try and do that? And it is those things like uh, being on time, uh, feeding back to teammates, uh, you know, showing respect to each other, showing respect to ourselves, um, how we carry ourselves within a community. Um, and that was something that was really important for me uh, with Team England. It was also, we did it with Raptors, uh, like in the very early days of Raptors, we basically, you know, the leaders had a chat with the group and we're like, this is what we expect. And sort of that became less formalized uh, as time went on, uh, just because people knew what to expect uh, from Raptors. And they sort of when you come to your first training, I think it's made pretty clear to you that, you know, it's all about maximum effort, maximum commitment. Um, but, yeah, it was, uh, you know, Raptors uh, and Team England are, are definitely areas where, I always tried to, to make it clear to people what I was looking for them. Um, and you're right, punctuality is so important. I despise people who are late uh, with a with a burning passion, um, <laughs> which, which makes Quidditch tough because uh, I had nearly 10 years of it never running to time. Um, but yeah, uh, and then with other sports like our rugby team out here, uh, the committee, we've, we've had a discussion. We've basically said, you know, what type of club? Are we trying to be? What are we going to tolerate 
what are we not going to tolerate? We have a code of conduct that I've written and a constitution that I've written. And, you know, if someone violates that, there there are warnings and procedures in place uh, to deal with that. And that's something that we ask everybody to to commit to and, and sign up to. Um, but, yeah, Team England is definitely the time I've had it the most formalised, uh, written down, going, this is what I expect uh, from you as players. Uh, this is what you should expect from me. Uh, as a coach, because there was more of that hierarchical difference between coach and player. Um, obviously, with Raptors, you know, I was captain and, and a coach. Uh, but, you know, as the captain, you're sort of removed from the player group to a degree. Uh, but also, you've got to be the one purporting the culture. You've got to be the beacon of how to behave. Uh, did I always nail that? Uh, probably not. Uh, but not for some of the reasons some people are probably thinking. <laughs> um, but that is that is where you've got to say, like, you, you show what you want by doing it uh, yourself. Um, and that can be tough, you know, because it's all well and good saying to someone, you know, I want you to commit. I want you to be on time. I want you to practice X, Y, Z. Uh, but if if the person themselves isn't saying that, then then that becomes sort of a straw man argument. Yeah, of course. And I think if you look at uh michael jordan the last dance and like mm. when you watch that documentary he just comes across as an absolute bastard half the time <laughs> like incredibly competitive inc- incredibly driven uh, and obviously what he produced on the court was phenomenal but yeah. you got the sense that he was not a nice person to be a teammate with but there's this one moment in the documentary where he goes i did all these things i was a hard case on my teammates because ba- ba- basically i did everything that I felt I was expected to do. And if I could do it, then there's no reason why they couldn't do it as well. Um, And that's not necessarily in terms of talent, but it's in terms of effort. It's in terms of putting the hours in and having those behaviours that can elevate a team. Yeah, that that documentary was a real problem for me because I've been saying stuff like that for years and I'm nowhere close to being as good as Quidditch as Michael Jordan is at basketball. (laughs) because that was the things i always said like you know everything i've ever done has been with the idea of my team succeeding um and that was sort of the personal culture i always had for myself that if i could come away from something and say well i did that for the good of the team uh, then i'd never regret doing it um and some of that stuff got me you know lambasted uh by the community um, but but a lot of it, you know, gave me or gave my team the edge to win. And that's part of your culture. You know, how willing are you ready to go to the line and how much are you expecting people uh, to play with an edge and to play to the line w- without crossing it? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, everyone wants to win. Even the people that play for fun uh, would always pick winning over losing. Um, but you know, there's that like I ha- I hate it the the like commentators thing of like they just wanted it more than the other team. I like shut up, shut up, you moron! Like we all want to win, like we all clearly want to win. Uh, but your culture is is the practices that you put in place uh, to facilitate that winning. And sometimes that is being hard nosed on people. Sometimes that's being unliked. Um, but you've got to you've got to push that forward uh, for that goal. I think, especially with the Michael Jordan comparison, uh, maybe not comparison, 
Uh, I'm mm. much more of a Phil Jackson, I think, deep down. <laughs> uh, but like, it's not always about being liked, but if someone respects you, that's enough. Yep. Because I've been on teams um, where I've clearly not been liked uh, in the moment for what I'm demanding of players and for what I'm doing. Uh, but I know I've been respected and I know I've got people to buy in on what we're trying to achieve. And that's not ideal culture, um, but that's certainly part of success is having those ebbs and flows where maybe not everyone's your best friend from what you're asking from them and how you're you're being with a team. But if they respect you enough to understand that you're doing it for the good of the team, then you're pushing towards, you know, that ideal team culture. Yeah, definitely. And going to this next question, we've kind of dipped in and out of it already so far. But kind of one of the big things when you're setting the culture is working out the why, kind of, the whole reason for doing what you're doing, why are we here, basically? Yeah. Um, so how does a captain or coach or a leadership team get their players to buy into their goal and believe in their collective potential? Yeah, it's a really tough one. Um, I found like it's very rare to find people who actually are all wanting to do the same thing. Um, teams usually set goals like, I want to win EQC. And it's like, yeah, we all, everyone wants to win EQC. That doesn't make you unique. Um, that doesn't make your goal special. Um, it's more like, what are you looking to achieve as a player? You know, it's about accepting your role within a team as well. Um, because everyone's going to have different goals within a team that help you win EQC. Uh, so before we get into like the culture side, like, so from my point of view, uh, with Raptors, um, for like my first season, uh, it, it was a tough one because of how my role changed within the squad as I got less and less rubbish. Um, but my, my goal was always to be as impactful as I could be off the bench, um, and sort of alleviate the stress for the first team players that when I went on, there wasn't the worry. Um, and there was, you know, there were points where whatever I thought about my own ability, I knew coming off the bench, like I was one of the best players who could come off the bench. So I revolved my game around making sure that when I came off the bench, I could be as impactful as possible in that two, three minutes uh, that I got. And then obviously over time, like as our team composition changed, as I got, you know, better, uh, my role within the team changed and it became, you know, what's going to be my role within the starting squad? Um, and then as that alternates, you know, what's my role in different phases of play, uh, different styles of play? Am I going on for impact? Am I going on to steady the ship and calm things down? Am I going on, you know, to try and be... Uh, more of a thought process in unpicking and, and learning what the other team's trying to do and, and devising a strategy to deal with that. Um, and all of those little goals push to, you know, I want to win X, Y, Z. Uh, the thing with getting people to buy in on a culture is tough. Um, sort of talked about it a little bit before where you've got you've to live up uh, to the standards you, that you're setting. Um, and, you know, you've, you've got to clearly show those. Um, and exercise those but you've also got to involve people 
um, in the culture. Um, so, you know, when I'm asking people to, you know, play physically, uh, play hard-nosed, play to the line, it isn't just enough to ask them, but you've got to show them how to do that. You know, you've got to show them the culture that you want. Um, some cultures harder to get people to buy in on because it relies on one person. Um, so for me, uh, I'm once again ready to be lambasted by the community. Um, <laughs> Part of the culture that I had uh, with referees um, for myself and my team was intimidation. Um, and I had that with the opponents and the referees. Like, I knew my place in the community, uh, both in the UK and Europe, and I knew the stature I had. And I knew I could use that to lean on referees, um, either to, to get the call to go my way uh, or to get a call reversed uh, and they, people go oh well there are times when you manipulated the referee 100% 100% I did it every single tournament I probably did it every single game and that was part of my culture of you know me working with the referees me playing the referees is part of our culture of what I'm doing to help us succeed uh, like there was a point where we were playing a game and uh, someone low tackled me and like it was, it was a, it was a foul. But like, you probably could have got away with a back to hoops. And then I went to the referee, and I was like, "Come on, surely that's a foul." You know, you've seen what he's doing to me. They're clearly targeting me. You know, blah 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 blah. All absolute rubbish. You know, of course they were. They're just playing the game. Uh, and the ref goes like, "Oh, I'm really sorry, Jay. You know, we'll look out for that next time." And I was like, "I know. You know, you're doing the best job you can. I completely understand it. You know, you're smashing it." Brooms down, bang, player gets a yellow card. And as the player's coming off, they go, you know, you can't just give me a card because Jay Holmes says that I deserve it. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, do you know what? They can. They really can. Um, and things like that, you know, sometimes I've had teammates that disagreed with how I was um, with referees. But then you explain to them, you know, everyone's doing this. And if we don't do that with the referees, the opponent is going to. And that's sort of the relationship you have to have with culture is you have to say to people, the reason we're doing this is, you know, is X, Y, Z. The reason we're playing to the line is because maybe the skill gap for us is a bit bigger than we'd like it to be. But we can close that skill gap by playing to the line. And then other things at training, you go, the reason we're picking up the cones after each drill is because it makes life easier for us and saves us time. And by saving us time, it means we can do more at training. By doing more at training, your growth is going to excel. And, you know, it's all it's all those little things. Like, culture's great, but people have to understand why they're doing something, why they're buying in uh, uh, to values and rules that, that you're setting. And that, for me, is the most important thing. If you can give people a good reason why you're doing something, uh, they're a lot more likely to, to get on board with it. You can talk about the why in terms of this big overarching goal and like people have different theories about how ambitious you should be with that overall goal. But the why comes into, as we just talked about there, like everything you do, mm. like I know you're doing a drill in training. Why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this to get better at our attacking technique and therefore in a game we're going to be better at tackling. Like it's a very simple example. Um, just having like little things like that because I think when culture kind of fails it's when the leaders in the culture 
um, don't convey appropriately the why in everything. They don't yeah. give they don't give their players an understanding of the reason for what they're doing. Um, and that's I think that's really important. He also talked there about roles as well. Um, and I also think that's really important. Un- understanding where you fit in, like what is your purpose within a team? Um, and I think about some of the best cultures I've been involved with in Quidditch. Um, I would say it was Southampton, where I think uh, my final year there working with Aaron Veal, um, it wasn't never ex- explicitly said, but I very much kind of understood that I was kind of one of the kind of key players within the, the group. I wasn't a leader, but I, I, it made it quite clear to me in terms of the way that I was one of the key people that other people looked to. And then say, when I joined Raptors, um, I think it was more explicit um, in terms of being part of the team, my first tournament there, where Dan Trick is the captain at the time, says to me, right, you're on the roster, but you are an impact player and you may not get to play every game. When you get on, you're probably looking at playing two to three minutes at 100% intensity, just to give our players a bit of rest to offer something a bit different. And for some people, like that might that might really annoy them, like they might want to have a really big role in the team. But because of the way Dan spoke to me in terms of um, knowing exactly what 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 the circumstances were, I could have said, no, I don't want to do that. And I would have probably played for Megs on the second team. Um, but he made it very cl- crystal clear exactly what I'd be doing so that if I accepted that, then... Yeah, I was much more likely to buy into the overall team ethos, essentially. Yeah, there's like there's two ways because there's your role as a player, and then you're like your role off the pitch as like a culture person. And I'm sure we're going to get onto that. Um, but yeah, it's important to know what's expected of you. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember we were playing. Uh, it was like Steel City, uh, and it was you know. The East Midlands lot with like me and a couple of others. And James was like on the bench with me. Uh, we were both off and he was like, the team's playing a bit soft, eh? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, the, the team's not being physical enough and like no one's setting the standard. And I was like, cool, do you want me just to go on and like smash the lights out of someone? And he was like, it'll probably help. Yeah, I was like, all right. So I literally made a sub, got the ball, like trucked over someone, scored. We call a timeout. And then James is like, that's the physicality we should be pushing for every single play. You know, you're all expected to, to match this physicality and, you know, and bring it up. And that's what you're, you're doing with like your culture. Like for me, I like watching bench players more because they actually represent the culture. Like the first team for any level, it's probably going to be your most competitive, decent people. But it's the culture that the second teams bring, you know, the intensity, the people that only get two or three minutes. Are they lethargic? Are they annoyed? Are they sort of not wanting to be there? Are they jealous of the first teamer? Or are they are they balling out because they know the team's more important than their ego? And that's another thing that genuinely I, I should have said at the start, culture-wise, Raptors, every single time we would say, no one is bigger than this team. No one person is bigger than this team. And I think we exemplified that, you know, when I was captain, at the times when I came off the bench, 
You know, that shows no, no one's ego is more bigger than this team or more important. You know, if we can bring, I'd argue I was probably our, our most important cultural leader. If we can bring this person off the bench and, you know, he balls out and openly, publicly, he's happy with his role. Privately, wasn't always the case. Uh, that's good culture, you know, and that's what you're looking for. Um, and, and that's the important thing. You know, people understanding their roles and then being happy with their roles, accepting their roles. You know, your bench players can be the people that win you the game. You know, that, and, and that's something that a lot of people don't really seem to ever appreciate in Quidditch. That, you know, if you can manage your, your subs well, uh, that's how you'll win the game. When you've got second string versus second string, that's where you can net the goals. Because I've been in games where, you know, either I've been a starter or, or a bench player and starter versus starter, you, you basically just match each other out. But then once you sub the bench unit on, that's where the game is won with who's being more intense off the bench, who's been drilled better, who's been trained better uh, and, and who's buying into what the, the team's trying to achieve more. And I think that's a really overlooked part of the culture that, that your second string is almost more important than your first string in some games when it comes to winning and it comes to being successful. Yeah, definitely. I think that, that's quite an interesting distinction to draw up there, Jay. Like, if you look at, say, as you're talking about kind of the overall, as opposed to culture-wise, um, but then you have, as I was talking about now, like different roles within that team. Um so you say, yeah, you've got your role players who may be playing two, three minutes and they might have a person wants to bring in. Um, but then you obviously got your star players and yes, you want your star players to meet all the standards of the collective, but also you want to give them the freedom to play and to express themselves and kind of to show why they are the better, more gifted players on the team. Um, and just like where you're talking about the different player, I think about the, the Belgian team the 2018 World Cup, and you look at that World Cup final, and well, we discussed it in the episode with Sapper uh, a few episodes back. Like He didn't score any goals in that game. Um, but you look at, say, Paul Bonnet, who's one of, as we talked about, one of these sort of lesser-known players sort of riding the bench, but then he comes on and he's been given very a very clear goal in terms of what the management expects from him. And he scores I think, a couple of goals make some real hustle plays for the team. And that's a real example of a team working in harmony where, yes, like you, you are trying to maximise your sepper on your team, but also you're getting the most out of a Paul Bonnet, for example. Yeah, and I think it comes down to like still looking at roles. How I always looked at the sort of differentiation is I had like a gameplay expectation and then to a degree like a cultural expectation um so like and this isn't just at tournaments this is a trainings socially you know everything everything we do and you know maybe at my time in raptors it was a maybe a, a middling gameplay expectation um but a massively high cultural expectation uh, for what i brought to the table um how i interacted with people sort of purporting the culture that we were going for uh, and then you look at maybe someone like Lucy, not to say that she didn't buy into the culture a million percent, N not to say that at all. She did. She does. She's she's 10 out of 10 in every regard. But for her, 
gameplay expectation, probably the highest on that team by, by a long way. So for me, the cultural expectation I want from her is, is considerably lower. Like, I want her to buy in. I want her to get on board. But I don't need her to be the one driving the culture all the time. I don't need Lucy to be the one, you know, picking up everyone and doing that side of the culture. Because I know for her, the gameplay expectation is what she wants to focus on and what she should be focusing on. And then with James, you know, you've sort of got the the middle to high gameplay expectation and the middle to high uh, cultural expectation. Because, you know, me and James were sort of building what we were uh, together. So, you know, obviously James has got is expected to play well. And, you know, he's expected to, to reinforce the culture with me. He's expected to speak up when he needs to. Uh, but I'm not always going to ask him to be driving it forward. Like, I think most people would agree. I hope that when I was captain, I, I was the person driving the culture um, and pushing us forward. But then on the, the flip side of that, uh, you sort of look at the roles within the culture and you've got people that are really pushing it. You know, you've got, you've got your, your me's. Um, but then you've got what I call like cultural conductors, um, conductor as in like electricity, uh, not, not fat controller. Um, and it's <laughs> like the sort of, the sort of people you're looking for where if they show they've bought in other people, are a lot more likely to go for it because myself, James, Lucy, Dan buy in and people go, of course they do. They're all as unhinged as each other. Like they're all they're all absolute nutcases, you know, of course they're buying in. But then someone who was. Uh, oh, excuse me, someone who was really important for me with buying into the culture uh, was Cat Jack. Um, and I think Cat was probably one of those people that when I turned up to Raptors, uh, she had like this preconception about what I was like. Um, but once I sort of like was a leader, the leader, have when you see it on the team. Cat uh, really bought in uh, to that on the team. And that was really helpful. Um, not because Cat isn't competitive. Cat is, is ferociously competitive. Um, but because Cat is a lot less overt, you know? Um, I'm big, loud, stupid, you know, lads, lads, lads. Wee. And, and Cat is... I mean, you know, I'm sure Cat is lads, lads, lads behind the scenes. I've suspected it for years. Um, but, you know, Cat is is one of those people who, who is slightly quieter, um, you know, a lot less of a, um, but also bought into the culture, gave her opinions, um, you know, disagreed when she felt there was, you know, the need to disagree, uh, but also worked incredibly hard at training, um, played to the style that we expected. And once people can see you know, cat doing that. They're not just buying into, you know, my way of thinking. They're buying into, you know, the cultural way of thinking, but they can see people following it. And that's what you need. Like, arguably, those conductors are, are more important uh, than the person setting the standard because those conductors buy in and they're the people that convince people that are on the fence. Because I, I think I can be very charismatic. I can appeal to a lot of people. Uh, but there are just some people who are going to struggle to connect with certain types of leaders. Uh, so you need your conductors to help those people connect. You know, 
my my background, my demographic, my ideologies, new people to Raptors might struggle to connect with me as a person. Uh, they they might agree with me to a degree culture wise, but they might think Jay's someone that you know I can't I can't really get a handle on in the short term. So your conductors help people get on board with that culture, and obviously in the long term, you know, like Raptors are some of my my closest friends. But you need those conductors that if people can't connect with you immediately, they can find someone else in the culture to connect with and agree with uh, and question and, and talk to. Yeah, definitely. I think about my own time in Raptors. Um, say we're at training. I spend a lot of time talking with John Cooks. And like a lot of the time, though he's this massive player, he's incredibly physical, and he's got this big reputation. He's got mindset where he's just willing and eager to learn he'll ask questions that might mm. be stupid questions but he won't always raise them say in a big group setting i don't know about yeah. our job personally but he might not be comfortable with that environment but quite often we'll be doing a drill and then partway through he'll just ask me a little question like oh what what what's the what what should we be doing here or i don't know if it's a rules thing like what are we allowed to do here what what what's good what's not um i found i find myself a lot having these conversations with john and like it's not to say that yeah, you should be bringing that in which you feel comfortable to communicate, basically. Um, yeah, so you kind of talked about the uh, cultural conductors, as you called them. Um, and it's a concept that other people kind of within the sporting community and kind of, I guess, within other high-forming cultures have picked up on, not just in terms of calling them cultural conductors but also cultural architects is like another name for it like these people who some of them are in leadership some of them are in a lot of cases not in leadership but they are kind of the people who are brought along the journey and kind of influence yeah. Yeah. maybe the newer members of a team um or maybe the less uh motivated members of the team so talking about this kind of topic of cultural conductors and cultural architects kind of how do you build those into your team like will they always naturally present themselves within the group or do you have to pick them out and encourage them to become more visible members of the team that's a really good question um it com comes in two ways um depending on like the the performance level of your team uh, at a base level whoever the leader is uh, there's a good chance the people that they're close friends with are going to be those cultural architects because they'll have similar values and similar experiences. Um, but a lot of the times I, I can usually in a group of people uh, recognize who it is just by people, how, how they interact with them, but how they carry themselves. Uh, but to go to like the meat of the question, you, sometimes you do really need to say to people, you know, you are a leader in this team. You know, you've got a role here. People are looking to you because sometimes they don't realize. Um, sometimes people don't realize that their their behavior is a reflection of the team. And I've had it on, you know, Team England. I've had it on Raptors. I've had it in rugby uh, where I've had to say to people, you know, people are looking to you on this team. Uh, you, you need to you need to step up um, and be a leader. Um, and talk to the, you know, the newer players or the younger players, or, or also maybe carry yourself a little better. Um, and I've had that said to me. I've been on teams where people have said, you know, people are looking to you. Uh, you need to, you know, carry yourself a little better. 
uh, and sort of recognize that what you're doing is, is having an effect uh, on this group of people. Like there, there's the really famous example when like David Justice went to the Oakland A's um, and they basically said to him, like, you're 37, you know, your best your best baseball is behind you. Uh, but you can set the example uh, for these younger guys. You know, you can set the example of what we're trying to do here. And Quidditch is much the same. Like when cultural leaders put themselves forward, uh, obviously you want to encourage it. Um, but for me, it was always about finding the people that I felt best fit the culture um, and encouraging them to, to speak up. I think a really good example is how much Dan Tricks developed as a leader um, in his time. And obviously some of that comes with us, you know, getting a bit older and greyer and more mature. Um, but that's from people encouraging him to step up as a leader. And like I, I had the discussion at Team UK with him and I said, like, people are looking to you, mate. Like people are looking to you uh, to set the example, to step up. And, you know, that's a great thing. But you, you've got to you've got to get on board um, with with that role. Um, and it's, it's not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone wants to be a cultural leader. Some people say and I've had people say to me, you know, actually, you know, I'm happy to, to you know, bust myself playing, but I don't want that responsibility. Um, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Uh, but you do have to help the people that you need to be more prevalent uh, step up uh, or else you just come up with a lot of people who have opinions. Uh, and then you're all just, you know, tossing pennies in a well at that point because everyone's saying, well, I think this, well, I think this, well, I think this. Uh, but there's no one to actually say that's all great. But, you know, here's the goal. Here's the drill. Here's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like that there's a really fine balance there to be drawn uh, between having these cultural conductors, these people who will sort of be vocal or they'll set the example yeah. within an environment. Um, but also, yeah, the the kind of too many cooks syndrome oh, where people yeah. feel like they have to say something. They, ha they have to be seen to be doing something for the sake of it. Um, and it's very much kind of a case. Yeah. On the why the purpose are people just speaking because they feel like they need to speak or are, is there a reason behind it like um i think about within the southampton culture that was part of and uh, or ollie craig for example and they weren't necessarily people who spoke all the time they weren't kind of loud in your face personalities as such uh but whenever they spoke people listened because yeah. usually they would have something valuable to contribute and they'd have something that w was important to say. And it's kind of a case of, yeah, if they did, if they didn't say anything, then they're just kind of, I don't know, setting the example in terms of their actions. But when they did say something, yeah, there was a real reason behind it. Yeah, a really good example for me for that is uh, Bill Orridge. Um, so like... Bill is a really, really good friend of mine. Phenomenal player. Um, but I'm sure you've seen at Raptors, Fraser, like... Very softly spoken is Bill. And doesn't always feel the need to speak up. You know, only speaks when, he, when he's got uh, something to say. Um, and I remember a training. This comes to a culture thing as well. Uh, we had a training um, Saturday, Sunday. And I went out Saturday night till about... I don't know, three o'clock in the morning or something like that. So this is while I'm captain as well, while I'm captain, while I'm saying to everyone, you know, they, they, they need to come and bust themselves and slave away at training. 
Uh, so I turn up on Sunday, dead man walking, dead man walking. And we're about an hour into training and I'm, I'm doing nothing. I'm contributing <laughs> nothing to the party. Uh, and Bill pulls me aside and he was like, Jay, um, you know, you're, you're clearly hungover. Uh, you're affecting the training. You know, th- this isn't the this isn't the the representation or, or the attitudes that you know you usually show or that a captain should show. Um, and I, I think you should stop training. And in the moment, I was like, Well, if Bill's saying it, must be right. Like the guy's clearly got a point. Mm. So I went and had a sit on a wall for about twenty minutes. Uh, had a big loop stage sport and sort of found my conscience uh and then came back um and had an absolute blinder had an absolute blinder of a training like flogged myself into the ground uh but suddenly played really well you know my shots started going my passes were better i was moving better and it was absolutely killing me to do it like i felt like absolute death and like it got towards the end of the day and I was sweating, like bloodshot. I, like, I looked like an absolute mess. <laughs> Bill came up to me and he was like, I know you weren't going to stop training, um, but you just needed to kick up the ass because I know you knew it, but someone had to sell you, you know, you're letting yourself down, you're letting the team down. And that's why I've said it to you. And I was like, yeah, that's fair enough. And that's what you should have as a culture, right? Like that's, that's exactly what I was looking for, for Raptors. Me as a leader isn't, you know, living up to the values I've set. A player who I respect and that the team respects has challenged me on my behaviour in the correct way. And then it's not just been left, but I've basically then been given the ultimatum. You either do something about this or you're letting the entire team down. And that is was a fantastic cultural moment because I went away, found had a speak with my ancestors in a big Lucasade, and then came back and flogged myself for the good of the culture, for the good of the team. And and that was sort of that's great culture. That's what you want from people. Because honestly, if James had said to me, You're clearly hung over, mate, like buck your ideas up, I'd have gone, You're right, but you know, I know that. Me and James is one of my closest friends in the world, and I respect his opinion to the day I die. But having Bill, who very rarely, you know, challenged me and spoke up against me to pull me aside and say, you know, this isn't the values that you've asked us to live up to. That was a a powerful moment for, for us culturally, because the team can see, you know, there's an issue. The issue has been addressed and we've solved the problem. And, and that is that is what you should be striving for. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. And like just kind of discussing this whole topic now, like it it reminds me of kind of two uh, sort other sporting examples. Um, I was actually watching a video the other day on YouTube. There's always like these YouTube shorts at the moment. Um, and I get a lot of basketball ones just based on what I watch on YouTube. Yeah. And there's a story from Kobe Bryant. And there's, Kobe Bryant has many amazing stories and. He was this incredible athlete uh, while he was alive. Uh, and one of the stories he was telling is basically how he was trying to get his teammates to work as hard as he did, which is very hard to do anyway, because yeah. he worked really hard. But 
his teammates like they wanted to have their cake and eat it so to speak like they wanted to be NBA basketball players but they also wanted to go out and party and go to nightclubs and things so Kobe goes okay then right I when are you going out next I'll, I'll come with you I'll come with you and they're like really it's like yeah I'll come with you but just know next day like we're going to get back to it when we get back to training so they go out they have a night out and then at five in the morning Kobe's up he's banging on their door come on let's get to practice let's go let's go let's go and they are like in, in your case that very <laughs> story hanging out of their arse and Kobe drags them out of bed gets them to training and they have an awful time and they're they're playing like a, a, a game that evening um and they do really badly in the game and then all of a sudden it became very clear it's like whoa, whoa whoa yes we can we we, we can party when when we want to but it's knowing there's a time and a place for certain things and if we want to live the lifestyle we want to be high achieving sports people we do have to focus on it at certain points so i guess there's that story which is quite similar in many ways to the one you talked about but also like in terms of just cultural architects and cultural um conductors saying um like you have different leadership models and teams where it might be just a one sole figure who is kind of the epitome of everything, the leader, the voice, they set the example. But then when you lose that person, the team struggles. Um, but it's, I think, overall, you look at some of the best teams across different sports, whether that's in Quidditch or elsewhere, it's the teams where you have several of the, these cultural architects, these kind of unspoken leaders who might not ever wear the armband, but they set the standards in, the, in yeah. terms of performance and sort of, their behavior so you look at yeah again the England rugby team for 2003 uh they, they got given this kind of dad's army tag whereas all these kind of old faces like you see martin johnson the captain but then you had people like lawrence delalio or richard hill for example uh trevor woodman jason leonard like yeah. all these players yeah. who are kind of old grizzled well dads like they're pretty beautiful but they dug in and they had this sort of culture of all these other leaders. So even if Martin Johnson, I don't know, maybe wasn't playing as well or maybe he was unavailable or whatever, there were so many other people who could step into that role. So, yeah, no, 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 at no point was that team ever lost. They could always get back on track. Um, so it's definitely important building those people up within your team. Yeah, it was uh, something I, after that, after that fateful training, uh, at every time we'd go to the pub or out after training i'd say we can go out for as long as we want to um but i'm just letting you know the expectation of training tomorrow uh, is exactly the same as it was today um and i was like if you want to go out till three o'clock in the morning that's your choice um but i'm just letting you know tomorrow me and the team expect you to be just as good and if you won't be as good uh, go home early uh, and that's sort of it's it's a role I, I it's a role that I've struggled that I've had to come to accept uh, like how over time for most of the teams I'm on I used to be like the the party let's go out you know let's get drunk let's be silly Oui. and now now that I'm a bit older and have responsibility I'm the guy I'm the guy when people are saying you stand for another drink. I'm like, I'm really sorry, but you know, it's eight o'clock and I've got training tomorrow. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to have to go home. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it, that's the thing. Like, it's just important, you know, that, that you, like I said, you set the expectations, you let people know what's expected and, and, and everyone buys into that uh, and can deliver the culture. Yeah, definitely. And like, it's showing what's important to you. Like, yeah. if you turn up to training and you're subpar, or I don't know, like may- maybe you, you skip out on a training or, or whatever, it's showing that this thing that we're all work- working towards isn't important. So just having those standards of yourself, it, it's, it's infectious across a team. Yeah. Um, so this next question, we uh, uh, just to kind of compare and contrast, because obviously you've been a cultural leader within a lot of different teams, yes. um, whether that's at university level with Banger initially, and then at club level with Velociraptors, also had a big role in uh, the Eastern Mermaids QPL team. And then at a national level, see being an assistant coach and then head coach with the UK. So can you explain how across these environments, kind of what are the differences between them? Um, but also, is there anything that was universal across all of these different teams? Uh, yeah, so there's like t- two models of culture that I look at. There's like uh, the short term culture and there's long term culture. Um, and like monarchs and mermaids are short-term culture, whereas raptors, Team UK, bagger to an extent are sort of long-term culture. Uh, for me, the cultural values I have never really change. Um, honesty, integrity, and effort are something that I sort of demand of uh, of everyone um, in, in all facets really of my life, um, not just in sport. Um, the difference with mermaids uh, was was very much I was sort of speed driving the culture and was so much less concerned about being liked um, and, and people wanting to be around me um, in the long term. You know, with Raptors, Team UK, uh, it was pretty important to be a figure that people, you know, wanted to be there in the long term with. Um, and wanted to buy into whereas with mermaids it was basically being given a month and saying to people you've got to get on my level and if you don't get on my level that's your problem you know Uh, and I'm going to call you out for it and I'm not going to be you know cotton wool touchy-feely because I genuinely just don't have time to Uh, so mermaids was a lot more of that sort of blunt uh, in-your-face culture um, where I didn't have time really to to do the whole learning journey with people it was very much this is what i need you to do uh, if you can buy in and live up to it fantastic uh, if you can't then you either do it or you play considerably less um and and the thing is that worked you know people most people bought in the core of mermaids uh, bought into that and did pretty well obviously the people that don't buy in uh look at me and think what a horrible person, you know, I don't like this guy. I don't want to be around this guy. Uh, and, and you know what? That was fine uh, because everyone said at that first training that the goal for them was to try and win QPL. Uh, so I had to put everything in place for Mermaids to have the best chance. Um, and, you know, we only lost to the finalists. So it probably wasn't that bad. Um, whereas, you know, the difference with Raptors and Team UK You've got a lot of a longer time to build it. You've got much better relationships uh, with those people because you see them so often. Uh, like the second year of Mermaids, 
we didn't train once. So my time for seeing this team was on game day, where I don't have time to, you know, feel people out for what they're like. I've basically got to put on what I think will work uh, and try and get that to happen. Um, whereas Raptors, you've got a lot more time, you've got a lot uh, more familiarity. Uh, the, the thing for me that always changed when it came from my culture was just the reputation I had um, and sort of how much weight uh, my, my opinion had. The reason that I could afford to be so abrasive uh, on mermaids uh, was because by that time, you know, I was Big J hoax. You know, I was, you know, Team UK coach, Raptors legend, <laughs> obviously. Um, so, you know, you could afford to, like, super drive that culture. Uh, whereas when I first came to Raptors, you know, I'd, I'd been all right for Bangor, but you're sort of joining a culture. And then over time, I was molding it to what I wanted it to be. Uh, with Bangor, it was very much arriving at a culture. And then in my captaincy year, you know, sort of drastically changing how we approached uh, how we were run, you know, as a sports team, as an ideology. And that came with such a big turnover of key players. You know, I went from being, you know, someone who, who basically didn't play uh, to the captain of the team and a starter, which meant the demand for me changed, which meant, you know, I had to adapt my training habits and, you know, get a lot fitter and, and take the game a lot more seriously. Uh, but also, you know, the culture changed. You know, I started to run us more like a sports team. That's where vocabulary of the team, you know, starts to change and our training methods changed. And, and all of that was culture sort of pushing towards individual success. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's the culture changes the time you come about it. Like what I can afford to do and say now is very different to what I could afford to do and say, uh, you know, when I first started playing, you look at going on discord now you know i can, uh, with the reputation i have with the like not to be egotistical with, with the accolades i've got backing me up i can afford to talk about the community you know very openly um in terms of its psychographic and its psychology and sort of people see that opinion and don't immediately dismiss it you know because i've got nine years of, of playing quidditch and nine years of research to back me up and I think that's what a lot of people don't appreciate when they come into like the overall culture of Quidditch is if you're a new person, even if you're right, people aren't immediately going to agree with you. You know, you have to you have to sell them the dream and, and convince them that, that your opinion uh, has weight and is valid. Um, and teams are exactly the same. Every team I've been on, in some degree, I've had to convince people, either through charisma or actions, that what I'm saying is is worth buying into. And, you know, is probably correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good to make that comparison across the teams and kind of talk about, yeah, short-term and long-term cultures and how those vary. Um, and yeah, like, I found that really interesting in terms of the banger transformation that you talked about. Um, I feel like, yeah, again, obviously we, we draw in lots of comparisons from rugby because it's like, it's the sport that we know. But, um, yeah, I can see many parallels to Dylan Hartley in terms of what he did <laughs> during his playing career, where he was always kind of this uh, sort of hard, tough, tough player. Um, but he had a bit of a checkered pass with sort of disciplinaries and he's kind of this very fiery, passionate character. And then once he got that leadership role at Northampton and then with England, he absolutely 
flogged himself in training and kind of yeah. made a real example of himself to the team. And he was never sort of the, necessarily the best player on that team, but he was a big driver in terms of what they did. And then nowadays, you, you see him as a pundit and kind of the way people look at him as a player. Like, yes, there's probably still people who hate him for some of the stuff he did <laughs> on the field, all the, the red cards and, I don't know, the, the abuse he'd hurl at people. But he clearly had this kind of journey of self-improvement and uh, changed himself through leadership so that when he makes a point now on TV, like people are much more willing to listen to it because they've seen the journey, they've seen the struggle that he's gone through. Um, so in many ways, that really reminds me of what you've done there, both at Bangham then also, but obviously what you went on to do. As you talked about with Mermaids, where you could, uh, you could, you could get away with sort of being more yeah. blunt and harsh, um, but purely because you'd backed it up with what you've done previously, basically. Yeah. And, you know, that's people will look at that and say, like, that's not a great way to lead. But, but everything is built on reputation and trust. Right. Like yep. there's there's a big difference between one of the most successful players in the UK saying something and some two year nomad saying something. And, you know, that's OK. Like we're allowed to trust people who know what they're talking about. Um, but once it comes down to, you know, you've got to show them. Like, I've had it with people, like, I can go really in-depth on Quidditch to, like, minutia detail. And there'll be times when I'm, like, knocking around or was knocking around, like, watching a game. Uh, and someone will ask me a question and I'll give a, a really detailed, like, what I think is quite an uh, incitive answer. And they'll be like, oh, wow. Like, you really do know what you're talking about. And it's like, <laughs> it, yeah, like, I wasn't, I wasn't a... a a national coach for five years by accident like I wasn't the captain of Raptors because no one else applied like I, I do know what I'm doing uh, but I think part of culture sorry I realize I'm going on uh, but part <laughs> of culture as a, a leader is not always showing your hand as well like there was a lot of stuff I did for the good of the team that maybe the team wasn't completely sure that I was doing it um, but part of being a good leader is being able to influence your team without them knowing that you're influencing them. And I think that's a real key part for like your culture is you don't want to always be super overt. You sort of want people to get on board without always knowing uh, that they're getting on board. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like this next question, uh, it's kind of more on the topic of like metacognition within your time with these teams. Mm. So you're gonna, when you were part of these teams, obviously across across your time with Quidditch. Like, how valuable was team culture to you? Like, is this something you thought about more over time or has it always been some somewhat important to you? Um, third year of university was very important to me because team culture was how we recruited and retained players. Um, and also... I knew we weren't the most talented group of players um, at Bangor. Uh, so I knew we needed to excel in other ways. That was sort of by being fit players, uh, but also just the buy-in and, you know, doing that. I hate the phrase, but I'll use it anyway. Doing like the one percenters on pitch, where it's if like, you know, if there's a one percent difference between you getting to the ball and not getting to the ball, have you put in the work so that you'll get to the ball? Um, Monarchs team culture is really important. It was my first big coaching gig. 
uh, alongside like Dev Squad. Uh, Dev Squad's probably the most important culture's ever been to me. Um, I was more bothered about the culture than I was the actual uh, coaching uh, for a long time because players needed to buy in uh, that you know they were the future of the national team and that it was worth coming to a bog in Kiel uh, to learn how to play a defence. Um, mermaids, the culture. I mean, it, my culture was important. The overall culture, I didn't really give too much thought to. Like, there were people going, oh, I'm not really enjoying how we're playing. And it's like, well, we are succeeding. So, for me, in the short term, that's the goal, is to... Like, bear in mind, when, when, I, when I joined Mermaids, because I couldn't play for the Monarchs, they did not win a game the previous season. And then I made captain of that team. And, you know, I've been a pretty successful player up to that point. Like, what, I've just, just come off captaining a BQC winning side. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you've got it. I can't not do something. I can't be the guy who's captained Raptors to win BQC and then gets absolutely filled in over summer. You know, <laughs> so you sort of, the culture there was more, you know, we, we've got to succeed for the good of what we're doing here. Uh, but then it comes to Raptors. Um, like I spoke about in the previous episode, after my first year, I was going to leave Raptors, but then sort of had a change of heart and was like, I don't be one of, don't want to be one of those people that moans, but then doesn't do anything to change it. So then I made a huge push to like change the culture and the attitude of Raptors. And that was something that I tried to do until the day I left. Like Raptors is, is a team uh, that, that means so much to me. Um, and, and everything I did, like I was always pushing for that culture uh, to be the best it can be. That there, there came points, you know, when I wasn't captain and uh, maybe towards, you know, the twilight of my time with Raptors where I could sense a cultural shift um, sort of away from what myself and James has cultivated for, for so long. Um, but that was due to, you know, a change in player base. Um, a, ch a change in like who was joining the team um, and just sort of an, an overall change in sort of what, what Quidditch was striving for. Um, and I didn't always disagree with, with things that were happening. Um, nothing major, but, you know, it all works up. But part of being a good, you know, cultural ambassador is accepting culture has to change. And, you know, it's not the, the Roman Empire is not going to last forever, you know, the wind blows and, and time turns and, and you've got to adjust to that sometimes, you know, what, what you deem as the culture isn't always going to be what's best for the team. Uh, and that was a hard adjustment for me, uh, for Raptors, because I felt like with team England, I'd have the flip side. I just got the culture uh, achieved that I wanted, but then there were a few times at Raptors where, you know, some things happened and I was going, I don't know. I don't know if, if this would be the same if I was there. Um, but, you know, that's life. You know, I'm not there or I wasn't there or I was leaving. And, you know, that's 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 part of it. You know, part of, of that is, is culture changes and culture should change uh, and, and adjust for the people that are there for it. Yeah, definitely. They, it's good to recognise that evolution over time. And obviously, like, uh, the, the sport is changing all the time like in terms of what's happening on the pitch, sort of tactically, gameplay-wise, rules-wise. So it's only logical that 
yeah, like you, you look at your practices and go, this is no longer serving us. How do we get better? And like having, I think, I think that is an important part of any high achieving culture is having that ability to evaluate yourself and to be able to realize what is working, finding a new part of your culture, developing that over time. Um, our next question, which I I put this in because I knew you'd love it. Um, <laughs> so it's comparing team culture within Quidditch with like the other sport, other sports that you've been part of. Because obviously you're now doing your rugby, like you mentioned before, you've been playing handball and all kinds of other sports uh, in the past. So kind of what do you say are kind of the key differences between our sport and then other sports as well? Um, in true, in true boomer style, I'm going to lay down the phrase, you know, the game's soft. It is, <laughs> it is soft as bread pudding uh, when it comes to people. Um, so, like, all joking aside, uh, the, the difference is, like, the interactions you can afford to have with people. Like, uh, the rugby teams I've been on have never been like they've always been pushing towards you know the more modern era of rugby player who's a bit more uh, aware of like gender identity and sexuality and acceptance which is great um but the teams are a lot more rough and tumble uh, there's a lot more banter there's a lot more sledging you know there's a lot more more friction uh, that doesn't mean anything you know people are abrasive just because that's part of how we are and how we interact on and off the pitch um, whereas with Quidditch, you know, you, you have to be a lot more, more careful with what you're saying. Like the, the distinction I always make is like when I was in, especially for like the height of my Quidditch, I was like the laddie one, the geezer, the sort of rough and tumble, wee, goo, wee. like that was how Quidditch saw me. Um, and then I go to my rugby teams and I'm like the posh well-spoken like quiet (laughs) anxious nervous one uh who's like you know calling people out for objectifying women and everyone's like oh don't be such a and then you know whatever expletive they want to put in Uh, and that's like such a such a polarizing difference um and that's not to say that quidditch is worse off uh but the longer i spent in quidditch and the more involved i got with other sports my patience for you know, people's immaturity, people's unwillingness to commit um, and people's just like self-righteousness to a degree uh, just got lower and lower and lower uh, to the point where like interacting with some of the community uh, just became actively painful for for me. Uh, And part of that is, you know, I got older as well. Like I'm 26 now. the, the youngest guy on my rugby team here is 21. And, you know, there's clearly a difference, but, you know, we get on really well. But you look for Quidditch, you know, there's me, 26, James, who's like 50, uh, playing against like 18-year-olds and like naive, you know, young people. And because of the, the pools Quidditch, you know, draws from, there are people that are so, so different to me in terms of, life experience and expectation uh that, that that can be tough whereas rugby you know as uh, as rugby loves to say just full of bloody good guys you know <laughs> um 
but you know what I mean? Like most rugby players have sort of had similar experiences and you can obviously you, you might clash on some stuff, but you can sort of have a similar idea of what a good time is. Um, but that's hard with like cultural differences in the community. Um, and obviously on teams, like a rugby club, you can basically say anything and no one minds too much as long as it's in lighthearted. Uh, but with Quidditch, you know, you've got to be a bit more careful uh, with what you're saying. You've got to be careful what you joke about. Um, but just also how abrasive uh, you can be. Uh, I was never very abrasive in training with my teammates because there was no need to be. Um, I was obviously, as you've seen on a Quidditch pitch, a very abrasive individual, an incredibly abrasive individual. Um, and that sort of gets called out as a negative and sort of something that's unique. Uh, but you look at any other sport in the world, uh, the, the, there's players like that everywhere. Like, there's always a players. Um, whereas Quidditch just doesn't, didn't really have that. Like, I remember when I left um, Raptors, Dan Trick made a, a mock-up poster of uh, Last of the Mohicans uh, with The Last of the Bastards. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, sort of that... It was just a very unique cultural thing in Quidditch to be an abrasive person on pitch, uh, whereas in other sports that's just sort of expected. Yeah, it, it's a good comparison to make, and um, there's definitely positives in favour of Quidditch. Um, mm, as, a new, as a newer sport, that there's so many things I think it does well. Um, there is certainly in terms of what I've experienced, there is that sort of softness as well which if you have played other sports, it can irritate you a little bit. And like I've I recently joined a handball team and like just kind of comparing and contrasting those two is really interesting because we're in the UK, UK, handball is not a big sport at all. Um, and it's kind of played on this very amateur level. But even there you turn up and I don't know, you, you throw a terrible pass in training. Like yeah. it's right, press ups go. You did that in Quidditch. Like that person might get really upset, might get really offended, but I think within that culture, it's just it's part of it. Like, and then you'll you'll learn next time not to throw that bad pass. It's it's little things like that where like you can get away with it in these other sports, but within Quidditch, I think you've got to be a lot more uh, aware of your teammates and kind of I think more more selective than many. Also mentioned um, your abrasiveness as a player, and like you, you, you look at other sports, and like I don't know, in football you had like Roy Keane, who's this real hard-nosed player, and people love that guy. Like when, when he played, like whether you're a United fan or not, like he's one of these great characters of the sport. We talked about Michael Jordan before, horrible, nasty bastards, but like it was part of the culture, and it's something I think within Quidditch, like we. We don't have this acceptance of that is part of sport. So it's an interesting discussion. Probably a whole other episode to get into yeah. at some other point. Yeah, the thing for me, so on two points there, with like the abrasiveness, I always wanted to be the player that people hated playing against, but they wanted them on their team. Like that's mm. who I always strive to be. Um, and with your point about like what you can say, like the bad pass, like heckling in Quidditch, people people like don't know where they stand on that and like just having a laugh at training like my my rugby team you throw a bad pass there's 10 guys letting you know about it 
you go play touch on a Monday and you have a shocker, you know, there's or, or someone like uh, beats you and gets past you. He's letting you know. And like, it's not to be to be mean or horrible. Like, it's just, you know, it's just a, j- a joke and a laugh. And it's to, to motivate you to, you know, get in the next time. Uh, but I think Quidditch, just from who it draws from, and, and you know, a lot of people don't have real yeah. sporting experience. And the I lack of social skills as well comes yeah, into that. But like, when you ask people if they play sport, they're like, oh, yeah, I played basketball in high school. No, that's not, that's not real sporting experience. Like, we all did PE. You're not special. Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, like, actually playing for a club and, like, playing in, a, like, a league that matters for something that matters... Uh, a lot of UK Quidditch players uh, just don't have that. I think you've just come up with my favourite quote of the episode, Jay. Uh, <laughs> we all pay PE, you're not special. <laughs> Love it. Um, in this episode, we've talked a lot about different cultures, whether that's within Quidditch or whether it's outside in other sports. I mean, I've already talked a lot about uh, rugby and basketball and all this. Um, so it's the topic of replication. Um, so is do you reckon trying to replicate the cultures and ideas of other high performing teams is a good approach is a good approach pardon me um and is there any danger in doing that um i think you want to replicate but not assimilate i think that's the right choice of words um like there i i always tried to pull from team cultures uh, professionally and, and amateur levels that, that I agreed with. Um, but ultimately, I wanted Raptors culture to be Raptors culture. Um, and I think, like, culture, you can copy values, um, but it's hard to copy a person. Like, there, there will not be another Ash Cooper. There will not be another Simon Bidwell. There will not be another Jay Holmes. Hopefully, um, <laughs> God because these people are so, you know, these coaches, and I know I'm talking about myself, but I know what I did well. Like they were so unique with what they brought to their teams and still are unique with what they bring to their teams. No one should be trying to, to copy exactly. You, you can take parts of what you like, uh, you know, what attitudes you like, the, the interactions you like. Um, but, but ultimately, like, if any leaders are listening to this, you know, you've, you've got to be yourself. Uh, being fake, you know, doing your best Jay Holmes impression is not going to yield you suddenly Raptor results, you know. Doing and it becomes your... really obvious, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, they put on a funny accent, so, you know, it gives them away <laughs> straight away. Um, but, yeah, like, I think you've, you've got to be true because, you know, you've got to – the culture has to fit the team you're going for. Um, I've had it when – you know, just coaching, you know, X-Man and Team UK, where, where the coach culture that worked for, like, one group of 20 players doesn't work for the next group of 20 players. Uh, and you have to be willing to adjust uh, on the fly. So I think you can take the values, you know, uh, punctuality, you know, aggressiveness, honesty, willingness to work. Like, you should take the values of culture, uh, but you should never try and lead in the same way that someone else does. A good example is if I tried to copy ash i would be a rubbish leader and if ash tried to copy me he would be a rubbish leader what makes us good and what makes any leader good is their uniqueness in their approach to situations you know in the same way like we've talked about football if roy Keane 
and Vincent Company tried to replicate how the other led, it wouldn't work for either of them just because no. it's not in their nature. Um, so you can you can replicate values and ideas, uh, but you should never replicate delivery. Um, because genuinely, like if I saw someone trying to lead how I lead, I'd be uh, to, in like a full replication. Uh, their, their team would not work at all. They can take my values and my strategies and, and my style, uh, but then work their own ideas into that. You know, you should always try and be yourself. You should never be false with your players. And it comes back to that honesty. Honesty will get you 90% of the way there with anyone you talk to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very kind of cl- good, clear distinction uh, to identify there. Like, it's it's very good to pick and choose different things from different cultures and, I know, listen to a podcast or read a book and go, oh, that's really good. I'll try something similar for my team. But obviously tailoring it to your individual circumstances and, yeah, evolving the culture as it goes. And, um, yeah, I think when I was thinking of this question, my mind immediately jumped to... One of my favourite films, brilliant film, Cool Runnings. Um, yeah, yeah. The true story of the Jamaican bobsleigh team. And um, partway through the film, there's this whole kind of storyline. I think it's quite important to the film where one of, the, one of the team members is looking at the Swiss team who are really high performing within uh, the bobsleigh uh, community. And like they're clearly gunning for a gold medal. And he watches them and he's he's really inspired by them, by them. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and then he cuts to them doing one of their practice runs and he's trying to get them to count in German. And all of his, his Jamaican teammates are going, what's this? What's going on? And he's going, oh, but that's the way the Swiss do things. Yeah. And the overall kind of outcome, the lesson from that film is, yes, there's nothing wrong with being inspired by people, but... At the end of the day, like once the team starts doing things the Jamaican way, they, they start performing, they start being authentic. And yeah, that's the real kind of a message from what is an absolutely brilliant film. Yeah, like I, I 100% agree. Like that's what I like. Like Raptors culture was and Raptors play style was very uniquely Raptors. Like you can watch that team and say that is a Velociraptors team. Uh, and for me, that is that is the proudest you can be uh, of something uh, that you've put into making that you can look at it and go, you know, that is everything that team stands for. And I can clearly see it and I can clearly see everyone believes it. Yeah. And I think, I guess, sort of looking to Quidditch as, as well, like you obviously you had the Team UK standing squad set up for many years. And what's been kind of a key trend since that's been going on is that you get players from all over the UK and they'll go to these trainings and a lot of them will bring back what they've learned from the sessions. Yeah. And like you'll, you'll then see that replicate in the way those teams play. And for a large part, a lot of it is positive because it's good practices, it's good mentalities, it's, it's lot, lots of good things coming out of it. But then you'll see sort of t- lesser, sort of lesser able teams trying to replicate things that Team UK do tactically, for example. And then you kind of look at that and go, well, that's not working for you because you don't have this play, you don't have that kind of player. Like, it's not authentic to what you are as a team. Whereas, say, I don't know, you look at, I think one example that always I really admire in Quidditch was the Barcelona Eagles team 
who were always made of like a small number of people in their team, but they played authentically sort of Barcelona Quidditch. Yeah. Uh, very different from Barcelona football. But um, they, they got the absolute most out of every player. Um, and they looked at the strengths and weaknesses. And yeah, like I feel like that is a kind of a model that, in a way of thinking, we need to strive for. It's not just going, oh, this team does this really like good tactic. We should do it as well. Looking at going, okay, that's really good. Can we do it? Oh, maybe tweak this slightly and then try it. Or maybe, oh, no, they've got this player, this player. That's not going to work for us. But we've got this player and this player. That's going to work for us. And working that out is, is a really important process. Um, let's now move on to the topics of failure and success. Like for you, what, what would you say the role of failure and success is within team culture? And is, is, fa- I don't know, is success as necessary as failure within that? Um, success isn't necessary, uh, but it really helps. Um, like you learn a lot about people when they're losing, but you also learn a lot about people when they're winning um, in terms of complacency um, and who's just along for the ride. Um, that was a criticism that I remember dealing out to, to some mermaids in a, in a team huddle. It was uh, some of you are just here coasting for a medal, relying on me and six other people to win it for you. Um, and I think so w- winning shows people's true colours. Uh, but failure is obviously important. Um, what you learn from failure, both, you know, from a gameplay point of view, but also just about yourself um, and how you deal with failure uh, is really important. Failure is always is something that I've struggled to deal with fin- since I was very, very young, um, just because I'm quite an anxious person. Um, but. I would always try and have my meltdown once it didn't matter anymore. Um, sort sort of once, once the, you know, it was whatever had happened had happened. And I knew however I was reacting wouldn't have an overall effect on the outcome. Um, but yeah, like failure is a, it's a great way to, to bond, uh, to be honest. Um, like genuinely it's, it's something that I always, would try and do is after you've lost the game or lost something you care about if you just get a group of people or your team or a group of people that you care about in that circle and just let that moment wash over you that's really powerful because you you experience something so unique together the same with winning when you're with a group of people and you let the the moment wash over you, you know, your emotions sort of come together and they, they come to the forefront. Um, and for success, that is that is a thrill that is possible, impossible to replicate like that. That rush of adrenaline is, you know, addictive. Um, but then you also, on the flip side, need to take the lows when they come. And not ignore the lows. That was something I tried to do for a very long time. Is when the losses happened was was pretend that they didn't, um, and just try and move on. But you've got to accept, you know, you've got to accept the losses as they happen as a culture. I think it's uh, it's from <laughs> one of the Indiana Jones films. A guy says to Indiana Jones, like, "You lost today, but that doesn't mean you have to like it." <laughs> 
and that is sort of how I always try to 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 go about losing when it's like you lost and that sucks and you're allowed to be miserable you're allowed to be angry you're allowed to react but you don't have to like this and you sort of have to let this wash over you um and something that always annoys me in quidditch especially uh is people's responses to when people lose um uh, like their behavior um like lqc uh, took their silver medals off at BQC, right? Um, yep. I did the exact same thing. Uh, when Raptors got bronze, I literally got my medal, thanked the person giving it to me, uh, and then took it off. Uh, and the amount of people that were like, that's so disrespectful, that's so unsporting, blah, 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 blah. It's like, what's it, what's it got to do with you, eh? Like, you know, like it's not affecting that person. You know, we're not paid professionals with, uh, you know, image rights and all that rubbish um and it's like you don't know what that person's going through you like you you don't know the sort of mixture of emotions that, that person's going through and a good culture is helping people deal with that like to to go to it again like 2018 when raptors lost to unicorns like that is without like w with the exception of like bereavement and mental health that's some of the most inner pit like I've, I've ever felt. And the only way you get past that is experiencing it together. Because the last thing I wanted in that moment truly was to be on my own. And part of being a good team culture is, is being near each other when people need support. Uh, because Not it's tough. on each other as well, right? Yeah. It's tough losing. on It's tough losing. But you want to be with other people. You want to be able to moan. You want to be able to sap. Me and James did it to each other all the time. And it doesn't make you feel any better in the moment. But in the long term, that's important that you, you come together and you say, we've lost, we've had this experience. But at the same time, we have been privileged to have this experience. And that can be tough. Like if you're getting battered in a 20th place playoff, maybe you don't feel quite as privileged. But, you know, sport is so unique that you get to experience the height of human emotion uh, with a group of people that you trust and you respect. Um, and you know, those, those low emotions are, are just Im as important to human and your team's cultural development as the highs. Um, but for me, you know, experiencing that and letting it wash over you, allowing yourself to experience that emotion is, is incredibly important uh, for your culture to progress. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think with the concepts of failure and success, like they are difficult to quantify like there's obvious failure like winning or losing a game like winning is obviously yeah. be being successful losing is obviously failing but it's all about how you set your expectations isn't it yeah. like if uh i don't know you you uh well you, you look at say i don't know we're raptors the the, the expectation is that you win the tournament yes. so if you don't win the tournament then that's a failure um people will see it as a failure but say i don't know you look at the last bqc if you are kelpies for example who from our last episode clearly had a really enjoyable time like they i think they won a couple of games but they also lost a lot of games and no one's going oh kelpies are awful whatever like yeah everyone's going wow like didn't they have a fun time and like that's seen as a, as a, as a success so it's what? working out like what you're 
expectations are within that, isn't it? Yeah, one of my biggest cultural failures with Raptors um, was always pushing people to to chase the next win. Um, and it was something that I, I only really came to accept towards the end, that we never really celebrated just what like a monumental thing we were doing. Um, and I never let myself enjoy or celebrate the victories enough. And I know by doing that, I sort of deprived other people of, of something that was really special to them. Uh, a good example of this is like when uh, Raptors came third, the BQC, I was captain. You know, I treated that as a, a monumental failure um, on the day and in the moment. And like deprived people who never got a BQC medal before of that joy and that experience and that jubilation of saying, I've won a BQC medal because, and it wasn't just me to the likes of me, to the likes of James, to the likes of Lucy, what, what had happened was a failure, but then you forget there are people that have been in the sport that have never come close to the, the echelons that you've brought them to, you know, they've come on a journey of, of self-improvement as a player, as a person. And they, they've for them achieved something that was wonderful. And I always felt so bad that I, I deprived people of that joy. Um, and I was always chasing the next buzz, always chasing the next win. You know, 2018, we won BQC. I celebrated for maybe 15 minutes and then my mind's on EQC. And then I know even if we'd won EQC, we wouldn't have won it by enough. Even if we'd won World Cup, part of me would have said we could have performed better. And maybe that's, you know, a defect in my personality, but I just never, I never enjoyed the now, like ever, really, uh, with, with what once I got slightly mature, which was really tough um, because you, you look back, like I look back at a career that I brag about and boast about to justify my opinions uh, that I never took the time to appreciate. And, you know, it's yep. only, only now when those moments are gone that you can say, like, bloody hell, we did something special there. Um, so that, that for me, was part of the, the like, I, I take that on myself, uh, was the part of the culture for Raptors where where I think I, I, I fell down uh, as a leader. Um, and we certainly, like, part of your culture should be, you know, you mourn the losses. But if you're going to take the losses as hard as I took them, you have to celebrate the successes. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, it's it's that fine line, like you want people to appreciate what they've achieved and also have that eye, eye on the next thing. Like you don't want people getting complacent. Mm. And I think there's, I can't remember who said it, but someone in sport said that essentially you're, you're never as good as they say you are, never as bad as they say, say you are. Mm. Like you, you could have won a tournament, but I don't know, you might have got a lucky decision here or there or like overall you've won, but like, you may not have been the best team at the tournament or you may have just squeaked through or if you lose a game it could be the reverse um like i, I look at raptors last bqc campaign a few weeks ago and people can look at that as a failure but the way i look at it like the three very even teams on another day we could have won that tournament um on another day we could have come second we could have come third like it it, it it's yeah it's how you process it as a yeah. whole 
I think. But I think it needs to be explicitly talked about for kind of the club leaders, especially like the university level, because this I think is a massive thing in terms of attention. Um, so th this question is, um, yeah, how can you make everyone feel included within your team culture? Uh, yeah, that's. I think this is a, a really like it's, it's quite an easy one. Um, the first one, the first aspect of it is everything you do off the pitch, everyone should be invited to. Um, I despise sports teams that like don't try and include everyone. And I feel like culture is built when you see each other out of game mode. Um, I think everyone that I've played with will probably agree like in the zone sports me uh, is a very different person uh, to me off the pitch. Um, and I think it's important for everyone to get to know each other off the pitch. And that's how you build culture. And you only do that if everyone is prevalent. Um, so that for me is important. And the other thing is just making sure you're searching for, for other opinions uh, and other like reassurance uh, in in a training and that can be as little as like involving people in on jokes or you know giving people feedback but also asking people to step up and give their opinion you know what do you think about this uh, how do you feel about this or can you explain this to the group you know uh, who doesn't understand this concept call can x explain it to y um, and it is just about that teamwork you know mixing up who people are working with um, I know towards, you know, the end of our time with Raptors, you know, James and I always really wanted to be on the same team because we knew what the other person wanted. And, you know, we worked pretty well as a duo. But good culture is, you know, you've got you've got to train with everyone. You've got to play with everyone. You've got to involve everyone. And it's saying to your leaders, to, you know, your cultural conductors and your architects, you know, make sure everyone's contributing, make sure everyone's getting involved. Um, and, you know, the positivity of feedback. You know, it's good to have fun. It's good to be positive. When someone does a good job, uh, you've you got to tell them, especially at a university level where people are coming to a sport where they literally have no setup for it. You know, when someone does something well, it's really important to say, oh, you, you've, you've smashed that. But don't just tell them they've done well. Tell them what they've done well. Uh, so it was like I always would give some unique compliments or I'd be like, that was a great throw. I really liked how you followed through with your wrist when you gave that pass and people look at you and they're like, you're a, you're a strange man for something. <laughs> um, but you know, it's things like that, like specification of what people have done well really helps them feel involved. Uh, but for me, like it is just that social dynamic, having lunch together, you know, making sure team discussions are everyone, not just the first team uh, is how you make everyone feel involved um, and not being patronizing to people. Uh, that are maybe less able. Um, like I always tried to make a point of never being patronising or condescending because uh, I despise that myself when people do it to me. Um, and Quidditch people did that to me a lot because they actually just thought I was stupid. Um, but yeah, so it's things like that. That's how you make people want to get involved. That's how you make people want to stay. Like you hear people say like, oh, my team won't commit to two trainings a week. It's like, no, what they won't commit is to spending two weeks in your culture or two weeks with you. Uh, it's not the sports problem. It's, it's the cultural problem. Like people don't want to turn up because what you're doing is crap. It's not that they don't want to turn up because they don't enjoy the sport. Yeah, definitely. I think kind of what I draw from that is the idea of involving people in the process, like treating them 
equally like they may not have the, the years of experience or their talent like necessarily but allowing them to be part of that process like you see a lot within teaching um the use of questioning um and like nominating people to answer questions and yeah kind of working in smaller groups to see who can come up with the answer within that setting um and just trying to add a few of those things into quidditch i think is also really valuable like making sure people's voices are heard making sure everyone maybe if they're not, even not piping up um with an answer all the time or they're not a leader just making sure that their opinion matters and them understanding what's going on matters basically um so our next question is that th these these questions are kind of more we, we've talked a lot about leadership and kind of being the leader uh, in these, these these team cultures but these questions are more kind of for people who are players kind of people who have no responsibility within these environments so especially this next question like if you are like a player without a role of power like what can you do to positively impact team culture yeah so like the main thing is just being a, a supportive and respectful teammate um you know gassing people up when they do well when people are down you try and pick them up but it's it's the little things like being punctual listening to the coaches making sure you're putting effort in and, and just keeping other people accountable um like being a good teammate i don't think is particularly hard um like it is just turn up do the job and, and you know get on board do what's asked of you um and help out where you can um like i think it's it's really simple just to you know you you, you turn up you, you say some good things you, you ask questions um asking questions is a good way to show that you understand um and and just helping other people understand you know being a good teammate is you know making sure everyone's got water helping moving the hoops uh helping the coach set up uh, you know, asking the coaches or players if they need a hand with anything, you know, chucking a ball around with someone who maybe is less confident with their passing. It's just little things like that. Like it doesn't need to be big, grand gestures. Uh, it's just turning up and, and doing a job. Um, for me, it's the, all I wanted is from some of my teammates. Like I didn't need them uh, to be, you know, blazing hellfire for Raptors. I didn't need them to be you know, leading the charge of, of inspirational charisma. I just need them to turn up uh, and do what was asked of them and just train hard, just, just commit. Like, I could forgive a lot of stuff, but I despise people who wouldn't put the effort in. Um, and I've had plenty in, in my time. People who turn up and coast and expect, you know, a pat on the back, ever to be, be told they've done a great job. And it's like, well, no, you haven't done a great job. You, you've been a hindrance to my training. You know, you've, you've contributed very little. And expect you know coast on the raptors gravy train like that's not how it works so i think it's just turn up work hard if you've got questions just be respectful about it you know the coach or the leaders might not always be right but it's about challenging that in the right way um there's nothing wrong with a bit of abrasion um as long as you go about it correctly mm -hmm. yeah i think that's that's a good good thing to point out there and um there's one thing um on the high performance podcast recently uh they interviewed steve borthwick who's the head coach of the leicester tigers rugby team and one of his kind of key core values was energy and he made this distinction of within the team environment you have people who bring energy they provide it 
and there's people who take energy away. And within that, obviously, you want to be someone who's providing energy. Like you're always kind of pushing the standards in terms of the way you do things. You're picking people up or down if you feel that's the right thing to do. Um, and then as you talked about the people coasting there, they're the types of people who are taking energy out of the team and taking the energy out of the group. Um, and yeah, 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 yeah. Another example I saw this week was um, there's a bit viral video going round. You've probably seen it where um, there's it's this youth uh, rugby team and there's one boy who's really upset about um, like he's thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a rubbish player, I'm not good enough. And this boy gets like right right next to him and he he goes no like you're you're really good for your age don't don't listen to anyone like i, I believe in you just that kind of arm around that person um is, is really inspirational so yeah very much kind of giving energy and taking energy you want to be giving it at the end of the day yeah so the the next question we, we kind of have talked about it already within that that question as well but it's kind of looking at yes man's or yes person culture and like conflict within your team environment. And like you mentioned there, like a bit of abrasion, a bit of sort of questioning is like how do you deal with conflict within the team? Like either towards the leadership or between players in the team. Like how do you go about solving that? Yeah, so I, I like on pitch. Uh, I love it. Absolutely lived for it when I was on on pitch against other people. Um, when you're in your own club, it's a bit different. I think conflict always arises because someone cares, um, and that's the important thing to remember. With Raptors, I always and Team UK, I'd always try and get us to have quite open conversations so that it never turned into conflict. So it never turned into an argument. Um, but, you know, it doesn't always happen. One of my one of the memories of this I have, um, playing with Lucy at training. Lucy, obviously an incredibly close friend of mine, played a lot of games with her. Um, and she was she was giving me like feedback on pitch. And I was saying to her, like, yeah, I know, I know. Like, I know what's happening. I've, I've already read the play. Like, I know you don't need to keep telling me. And uh, brooms down. And she was like, hey, Jay, like, you're really pissing me off, man. You're really pissing me off of your, like, I know, I know, I know. I know, you know, I'm trying to improve us as a team. And I was like, you don't need to be speaking down to me, you know. Like, I, I, I can read the game here. I just feel like you're patronising me and belittling me. And we had we had a bit of a we had a bit of a tip. And I could I could see like everyone was looking and they were like, oh Christ, here we go. And then we went and we had some water. Uh, and I picked up my orange juice and I was like, Lucy, do you want some orange juice? And she was like, Yeah. She took some orange juice and we were both like, glad we got that sorted, eh? And then we cracked on. And that was it. And Elliot was like, it was like my mum and dad were arguing, and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> But the thing for us was like, you're allowed to have that conflict, that abrasion, as long as you see that, you know, it's not personal. You, you don't mean anything by it. You know, we both had something we had to say to each other. We said it and then we moved on. And for the rest of the drill, you know, we smashed it. You even have a laugh about it. You know, like abrasion and conflict comes from caring 
and from an unmet need. You know, a teammate isn't meeting a need that you need them to meet. And a teammate hasn't registered or recognised that they need to, to meet a, a factor. Uh, so, you know, if, if things do flare up, obviously there's going to be times if it's just someone saying, I hate you, well, I think you're an X, Y, Z. That's where you've got to intervene. Uh, but sometimes for me, you've got to let conflict play out a little bit, you know, just just so people get an edge on each other. Like some of my some of the teammates that I'm closest with, you sort of feel each other out in those arguments. Right. Like one of you, one of you goes a bit too hard in a tackle and you say like, oh, maybe with more expletives, like what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? What are you tackling me like that for? And then your teammates are saying back to you and they're like, well, you know, X, Y, Z. And you have that little like clash. You lock horns. But then after that, you're close to teammates. You know, you, you, you build from these experiences. So it's about as a coach, I always wanted to let let it play out a bit to see how players reacted. Like we had it at Team UK and Team England. Sometimes it gets a bit fiery. And a lot of coaches want to douse that straight away because they go, oh, we can't have we can't have the niggle. We can't have people being abrasive. But I was like, that's, that's what I want. Like, let's have that for 10 minutes. Let's, let's let people get into each other a bit and see what we learn from it. Because at the top level, that stuff, those are great games. Those are fantastic games to be a part of. And that shows me how someone's going to react in that situation in actuality. Because I've had it where teammates have said, like, I've been arguing with the ref and we're getting the calls and I'm arguing with the other team. And I've had teammates come up to me and they're like, you need to calm down. And I'm like, I'm, a I'm actually fine. Like, this is all for show. This is all for the theatre of it going our way. Like, I'm doing this just for effect. Like, you don't need to worry about me. But their captain over there, that guy is pissed off. That guy is angry. And he's going to make a bad decision now. And the next play, I know he's going to make a mistake. And you only get over those experiences just through having them in training. Because if everyone's best friends holding hands, singing Kumbaya all the time, when your team actually comes up against it, they'll turn on each other straight away. You know, blame, fingers get pointed. Whereas if you allow a little bit of that in training, you let people rub each other up the wrong way. You know, you piss each other off a bit. That That's only good for your team. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, Jay, honestly. Because like, as you said, like the initial thought of any person, especially in Quidditch, is to shut that down immediately. But I, I do think in my own experience, like allowing that conflict and resolving that conflict is really powerful. I yeah. can think about um, my time at Southampton. And there are certainly times when I think. For example, with Andrew Ollick, like two, these two guys mean the absolute world to me. And I'm not afraid to say that. Like, they're, they're brilliant teammates, they're brilliant people. But we've not always seen eye to eye on certain things. And, like, there's been times in, say, training or... Because we have that kind of competitive mindset and that yeah. that sort of will to win. And, like, th this matters to us. Where we, we, we've had our disagreements. But I think after we kind of got through that and we understood where each other was coming from, that bond between us became so much stronger. So there's, yeah. th th obviously there's a negative side to conflict, but also being 
sort of mature enough to resolve it is also massively powerful as well. Yeah, well, you look at like Merc tournaments. One of the things I loved the most was playing against my mates because you can get at them. You know, you know <laughs> what they're going to do. They know what you're going to do. And you can like, you can chip off at them, which was great. Is the other thing that, that Quidditch ruins for me is like the chippiness on pitch. Like we're so quick to shut down anything. And like, firstly, it's great spectacle. Like it is great to watch two people properly going at each other. Um, but like that's that's good for the game. That's good for players to have, you know, a bit of abrasion, a bit of altercation. It's what I loved at Merc tournaments, you know, where where you'd go against. I, I had it with with Warren at Jurassic, where he fouled me, and then we're like we're going off at each other, and we both know it's nothing personal. It's just part of the game. And then after the game, you give each other a hug and you go, that's a laugh, wasn't it? Like yeah, whatever. Whereas Quidditch is in this mindset, I'll use you as an example, Fraser. Yep. The semi-final, <laughs> you know, Doug says something to you and squares up to you a bit. You push Doug away. Yep. It's over. I love it, personally. I'm watching that game. That's cracking spectacle. People clearly care. The game's getting a bit oi-oi. Perfect, good game. And then the game's like, oh, no, we're going to have to give you a yellow card for unsportsmanlike conduct or disrespect. And refs are like, oh, we're worried the game's getting a bit heated. I'm like, it's the semi-final of BQC. Of course it's going to get heated. <laughs> but it makes it a good game. Like, there's a difference between heated and, and nasty. And I think, you know, a bit of heat, a bit of locking horns is good for player development. But it's also good for, like, a bit of spectacle as well. Um, and it's one of the things that annoys me that Quidditch is so quick to try and stamp out anything that could be like remotely registered as conflict yeah it's a very good example to draw on and like i think what people need to know about that and kind of what happened like it was just a moment where tensions boiled over um and in the moment myself and doug like obviously weren't in agreement about something <laughs> but then straight after the full-time whistle blows like doug comes to me and goes hey mate we both play rugby like we know it's a part of the game we shook hands straight away and like that was it and like although in that moment like i don't think either of us were particularly fond of each other but afterwards we could look each other in the eye and understand the context of why we behaved in that way and were able to apologize to each other well look at um look at when i squared up to greenhouge at <laughs> that was quality spectacle yeah you know, that's, everyone's, <laughs> everyone's rushing over as if there's going to be a fight of course there isn't of course there's not going to be a fight you know i'm defending my teammate he's unhappy with what's gone on we've had a bit of to and fro and that's it that's all it is and then you move past it but a lot of quidditch people are so like conflict aversive uh that it just becomes like hysteria as soon as someone raises their voice yeah definitely definitely but it, it's good to talk about this kind of stuff and uh yeah, allow people to understand sort of, I guess, the darker arts of sport, yeah. maybe that don't understand it in the same way. Um, this next topic, uh, I think we, we, we've ducked in and out of so far, but it's the off-field stuff, um, kind of the, in the downtime. Mm. So I, I know, I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to say to this, but how important is bonding 
in the downtime in between training and tournaments um sort of doing like both like organized fun and like organic fun and then like another question on top of that like does it matter whether teammates are friends or not so this was the thing that sort of became my point of difference as a as a person involved in teams was like my ability to bring players together socially and, and help them interact and help them get on with each other like when i first started playing I didn't think people needed to be friends. Um, like, I thought, we need to respect each other, but we don't necessarily have to like each other. Turns out, if you're on a team for a long time, it gets pretty important to like each other. You know, I don't want to be somewhere after four years and go, I only like two people here. Um, <laughs> I think respect is the key thing, but I want my teammates to like each other. They don't need to be best friends. Like they don't need to be, you know, groomsmen and bridesmaids at each other's weddings. But I need them to be able to, you know, shoot the breeze, get on, enjoy each other's company. And that's why I think team meals, team days out, you know, having a fairly active, you know, chat between players is really important because that's where you build the bonds. Like James is one of my closest friends in the world. He didn't become that from the 103 games we played together. It made, obviously, a difference, but we became close. Me and Dan Trick, me and Lucy, me and Bill became close for all the time we spent together off-pitch, you know? The memories you make, the laughs you have. Like someone like Kat, you would look at me and Kat. We are not a natural friendship pairing, but we've spent so much time together, gone through so much on and off the pitch together, you know, travelled places together, that we are good friends now. And that off-pitch stuff is important because that's where you build the trust. That's where you build the camaraderie, you know, the mental fortitude to understand your teammates and to understand their reasoning, you know? Understanding about players' personal lives helps you understand their motivations, their goals. It's something we, we emphasise heavily at Team England, was understand people's true motivations for wanting to excel in the sport. Um, and I think it's a often neglected uh, part of most sports that, that people could could learn from but yeah the, the off-field stuff your leaders still need to be leaders you know they can let their hair down they can have a good time god knows i did as you saw fraser yeah um, but you know they still need to be there i i would hate it when the club would socialize and like the social sec isn't there or the captain isn't there and it's like well, what are we doing this for like the whole point of going out is that we're a team and that, for me, is important, that it isn't just six good mates sitting in the pub talking absolute guff. It's you get the team out. You know, you talk a bit about Quidditch, but you get to learn from each other and know things about each other. Makes you a team. That's where the culture's made. Yeah, 100%. And like, I think about uh, my time at Southampton. Um, within that year when we won BQC, uh, the, the role of social secretary came up. Is a vacant position and me as a very keen wide-eyed fresher went yeah i'll fight that why not so i became the, the social secretary and kind of my goal going into that was sort of to to bring us together as as a club because we were quite a big club by that point we had the second team going we obviously had the first team who were kind of the established players been playing for one two so okay three years and just trying to provide opportunities to bring those people together and like to get them thinking the same way and understanding each other um so when i got that role i was like right we're gonna have a social every week and 
it's completely optional, but obviously the more you turn up to, the better. Um, and if you're part of the committee, like that's even better because you're you're showing as a leader that this is really important. But we have times when we go out, we also have things where I know we just meet up in a room at university. I mean, there's one time we had, um, do you, do you know the Harry Potter Quidditch World Cup uh, PlayStation game? It's where I got all my tactics from. So. Yeah, that, that that absolute uh, iconic game. We we did a like a FIFA style tournament with that, um, and like we had some board games as well. There's one time we did like a, a team building night, and I, we did some like team building games, and some of them honestly weren't weren't very good. Some of them were quite fun, but we we went through that experience together. So when we got to these big games at PQC and EQC at the end of the season, like we knew each other that bit better and we understood each other. And yeah, although I might not be best mates with a Gemma Fripp or I don't know, uh, a Nata Bear or whatever, I can now understand them uh, as players. And yeah, I think like building those bonds off the pitch like it will help you so much more when you're on that pitch together. Well, look at look at me and you, Fraser. Like when you join <laughs> Raptors, like we've obviously we had a lot of history playing against each other. We yeah. have history of you refing me. But all it yeah. takes is like we sit in the pub together once, we have a meal and a drink and a chat and a laugh, and then you and go. We're not that different. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just another bloke. You know, he's competitive. I'm competitive. Cool, and, and that's where you build the bonds. Like. And, that, and now we're good mates. Like, yeah. it's so, so important that you you do have that social time together because it just, it sweeps away all of the, the misconceptions. Yeah, exactly. And like, as, it, as we talked about, there's like, there's different versions of you. And, I, and like, you talked about how abrasive you are as a player. I think I'm very similar in many, like, many situations. Like, I fully and um, the best kind of example of that was when uh, Bex Lowe joined Southampton uh, for that one season. And I think we had this moment at the awards evening. Uh, Bex was like, honestly, like when I joined the team, I thought you were a dick. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. And then she's like, yeah, but having played with you, I realise you're not as much as a dick as I thought you were. Um, and that was really nice. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's having that maturity understanding to realise that there is a player version of someone that you might play mm. against, but once you get to know them, what motivates them, what they're like when they're not that that version of themselves, yeah, it, it's pretty powerful. Um, we're going to move on to sort of the final section of the episode, kind of wrapping things up, um, and we've got kind of a few questions that are inspired by the High Performance Podcast, which I recommend to everyone. Uh, listen to this podcast first let's that one second because it's, it's brilliant um this kind of question is based on a question they ask their guests about uh non-negotiable behaviors but i want to tell the team for you jay like what are three characteristics that are essential to a positive team culture uh going back to the first one that i always say uh, I won't say honestly, I'll say openness. Openness for me is really important. Openness about, you know, how you feel about 
the environment you're in, how you feel about your teammates, uh, and how you feel about your do your doing, uh, and you know the the culture that you're in. I think openness uh, can never be overstated. Uh, the next one, uh, non-negotiables for me is effort or intensity. You know, a variation of one of those words. Um, I really like a misconception a lot of people have about me is that I don't like people who are bad at Quidditch. That is not true. I don't like people who make no effort to get better. And yep. for me, so openness, effort is so important. I need people turning up to train, showing me they want to be there, uh, showing me uh, that they're trying to improve. Because um, I think that that's so vital. Like you need to be showing that you, you want to learn. So we've got our openness. Um, we, we, we've got our we've got our effort. Um, and then I'm trying to think of the word for what I mean uh, for for the last part. I suppose I suppose it's support. Support. Uh, it's sort of differing from from openness uh, and effort. Uh, support, as in supporting your teammates, supporting your club, um, buying in. Like for me, I'm a real all-in sort of guy. Like if I pick a project, like commitment. Commitment is probably the word I'm looking for here. Uh, commitment to the club, commitments to the club's goals and its success um, and commitment to the players. So how I see effort is, you know, when you're at training, you know, trying 100% in a drill. Whereas commitment for me is you're taking the time outside of training to improve as a player. You're committing to spending time with your teammates you're committing to to learn from other people um you're committing to turning up to trainings does my head in when people just don't have an excuse oh i don't fancy it this week well what the hell's the point of even bothering turning up at all then if you don't fancy it you know oh, i'm really sorry but you know i just don't think i can make it because i'm feeling a little bit tired yeah obviously we're all tired we all work you know we all study it's the one that did my head in at university where like I played, I think, three sports alongside my degree, alongside volunteering with my student union. And I realized there's definitely some neurological defect in my head. But like it always bothered me where people were like, oh, I just, you know, don't fancy it today. It's like, yeah, but I bet you'll fancy being in the pub later, wouldn't you? I bet you'll fancy <laughs> sinking 40 quid down at a bar, getting smashed and waking up with a hangover. Yeah. Um, that's always be commitment to the commitment to the cause is a phrase you've probably heard me use. But yeah, commitment to the cause is is important. So yeah, openness, effort, commitment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like three really good characteristics. I like that. Like the openness, it's not just like uh, expressing yourself, but also it's sort of yeah, feel it, feeling heard and the ability to, I guess, make mistakes many ways yeah um and it's like if you do make a mistake it, it's part and parcel of being a human it's part and parcel of a good team culture and working through those moments is massively important like um there was a a study done uh on um i'm probably gonna butcher this but basically within the boston um medical schools and they looked at different teams and within that um there were teams that were kind of more open, more honest with each other. Um, there was kind of a more kind of high-performing perfectionist team. And in terms of like 
the mistakes that these two teams made. The team that was more perfectionist, they made less mistakes. And it was the team that was more open with each other that made more mistakes. But you can't, came to sort of realise that the team that was more open and honest with each other were they they weren't afraid to make the mistakes like they knew yeah. that if they did if, if they if they messed up their team of their one um they were therefore more open to admitting they made one where i say with this perfectionist team is that fear, fear of being constantly on edge that oh if i make a mistake here this person's gonna have a go at me and that person's gonna say that's not good enough um and just like li- living on edge living with fear so it's good to be open in that sense as well 100 percent. um obviously you're a very well-read man um do you have any recommendations about any books or podcasts or resources where people can learn more about building a positive team culture yeah like i've read lots of books and I, I read a lot of like psychology papers as well the one book i'll just go for one so i don't rattle off <laughs> uh, yep. the one book that really changed my approach to team culture is called uh, 11 rings by phil jackson um and it's the story of how he won 11 championships with the chicago bulls and the los angeles lakers um but within that book he talks about the book is less about the championships and more about how he built a team culture, how he dealt with players, um, the psychology behind tribe mentality in like early humans and how that's still relevant for us today. And that for me really changed how I approached Team UK and, and Raptors to a degree. Um, would highly recommend it. It talks about dealing with difficult personalities, dealing with different types of people, you know, the mental strain being a leader can take on you. Um, so yeah, that, that was a really important uh, book to me because it, it just taught me so much about, um, about what I was doing right and, uh, and what I was doing wrong. Um, but I, I honestly, just any, any sports psychology book is going to have something in there that's worth reading, whether you agree or disagree with it. Um, they're all worth a look and to echo your points the the high performance podcast um yep. it, it is, is an absolute banger um, when it comes to understanding the psychology behind people uh, and things like that but for me it was just about trying to read you know as much as humanly possible i read a lot about sports psychology social psychology um I even even military psychology uh, and things like that to just understand people's mindsets um and then you know the the studies on like how adrenaline affects our thought process um, how different emotions affect our ability to think i'd even look at things like how how weather affects uh, affected sport uh, and people's perceptions of how they could play um, and these things might make only a 0.01 difference but you never know if that that little tidbit of knowledge that you've got uh in the back of your mind uh, is going to make a difference to you as a as a culture uh, or, or as a player yeah definitely two two really good recommendations there and like i think about in terms of resources and reading books and po- list of podcasts and stuff like a lot of the stuff we talk about certainly within this episode and yeah if you if you list the high performance podcast it's brilliant but you're not going to relate to everything that's yeah said or everything you read 
like they're all a variation on a theme and some things will be really impactful for you some things won't like uh the johnny wilkinson episode for example mm. is incredibly confusing um but for some people it's mind-blowing whereas say i don't know uh there's the episode with casper schmeichel for example that's the city goalkeeper where he's talking about how uh, his dream of winning the premier league was because he lived such a privileged upbringing being the son of peter schmeichel is famous footballer that he was chasing something that he couldn't buy something that only he could attain through his effort and mm. yeah there's certain things that you won't get but you can pick and choose and then try and apply those things to your own life it's one of those things you can never learn too much right like that's how i've always tried to be in quidditch and just in my life that <laughs> there's never going to be a problem that you know too much stuff or you know too much about a subject like Throw yourself into it. And something that's important for Quidditch is you've got to actively seek out the knowledge. You know, there's so few of us who are qualified or experienced enough to give all the answers, um, but also have the time to do so. You know, it's about Quidditch players need to be a lot more forthright in finding out their own answers rather than just waiting for someone to tell them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's what something that's something we're really good at on this podcast. I'm going to mm. blow my own trumpet. Um, kind of bringing those voices to light and sharing uh, that insight. Um, so these final two questions, um, I guess there's a chance for you to blow some smoke up people up people's asses and uh, do all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so it's looking at people who inspired you, firstly. So can you name three people, firstly within Quidditch, and then three, three people outside of Quidditch, or maybe in other sports or walks of life, who've inspired you as a cultural leader? Oh, three people within Quidditch. Um, let's have a look. Banger, uh, Anna Barton, close friend. Andrew will be very unhappy I didn't say him. Uh, <laughs> Anna, Anna was really good at like bringing us together as a team, making everyone feel valued and like helping put up with the quirks of, uh, of all of our, our little nuances as people. Um, you know, she she was great at bringing our team together. Everyone respected Anna. Uh, everyone loved Anna. Um, and she, she was just a great team woman. Um, and, you know, she, she can take part responsibility for the, the Quidditch monster uh, that <laughs> I've become. Um, I suppose Ash as well. Ash was one of the... Ash Cooper was one of the, the first people, you know, that did Quidditch coaching correctly um, and well and thought about the psychology of the game and the nuances of the game. And as much as it pains me, we are all descendants from the Ash Cooper coaching tree in one way or another. Like, I'm pretty, pretty, you know, big as a root, but, you know, Ash is the seed of that tree, and we are all descendants who bask in his shade. Uh, one more. Cultural leader. Oh, it's a tough one. So we've got Anna. We'll have Ash. Oh, let's think what what f oh probably louis hey you know what he's done as much as louis Lillard, what a guy mention him because everyone loves him um like what louis does with the dodos and you know how he conducts himself as a player how he conducts himself on the world stage how he gets that buy-in um, and how he can afford to you know play at a world-class level uh, you, you can't hate uh, the guy either, right? Like, yeah. even when he is being that aggressive version of himself, you can't hate him. Yeah. But, like, the fact he can play at a world-class level and still be an important leader to his team 
Um, it's really really something quite commendable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three really good choices. Quidditch. Outside of Quidditch, the first one goes to my handful captain at university, uh, who I've not spoke to for six years. Uh, is a guy called Scott Wiley. Um, he did a great job as a club captain, uh, captaining our handball team, making everyone feel involved, had a laugh with, you know, the whole team, but still had that air of authority, you know, made sure people didn't step out of line, made sure everyone was safe, made sure everyone got on board. And like, I genuinely reckon a lot of my captaincy style is still based off uh, what Scott did with me when I was a young man. Uh, developing universities. So, yeah, Scott was, he was a great bloke um, and taught, taught me a lot um, and was like the one of the first uh, captains outside of Quidditch I'd had for a long, long time. Uh, can they be famous people, by the yeah. way? Yeah, oh, okay, people you cool. hire in sport, I guess. Uh, so, back to a reference earlier. So, like, Vince Lombardi um, is one of my favourite sports coaches of all times his biography um is one of my my favorite uh, books i've ever read uh, there's a really really beautiful extract in it uh, where he talks about that you know what he lacked in in size and ability uh like he was never gonna be able to reach the upper echelons of being a, a player um but what he did have that other people didn't uh was like the ability to drive people to be better than they ever expected um, and sort of that fire to push people forward to compete um, and to lift up others around him. Um, and I think that's really special. That was always something I tried to do because, you know, I, I was never the most athletic player, never the most gifted player, uh, but I always wanted to try and, you know, push my teammates to achieve what, what I thought they could and, you know, show that desire and, and show that effort. It was always something that was was very special to me and something that I always tried to achieve. And then back to the other book was, you know, Phil Jackson was a coach that inspired me. Sort of that book and reading about him and learning about him taught me to soften my leadership and my captain approach a lot and, and helped me to mature in how I was, I was dealing with players, um, which was really important for me, but also helped me, you know, come to terms with, you know, the good and the bad of, of being a leader and, you know, how acceptance in sport is, is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some, some really good choices there. And our final question, she's on kind of a similar line, but obviously we talked about cultural architects before, cultural conductors, yeah. whatever you want to call them. Um, so just kind of based on the, the players you worked with as a coach, who would you say have been the best cultural architects, in your opinion? So, Bag University, can't mention one without the other. Uh, Liam Vernon and Fabian Brunt, the two, the two <laughs> Russian ministers to my oligarchy. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were all in on the culture and did everything they possibly could to support me. And they were so committed to the team. Um, like to the point like they are my my closest friends and, and still are. Um, and we went through so much together, uh, but they, they were pivotal and vital in making sure that that Bangor team uh, succeeded. 
Um, and they were always, you know, they were my conscience for when I was going, is this, is what I'm doing actually worthwhile here, fellas? And sometimes they just go, yeah, you're all good. And other times they go, you're, you're full of rubbish, Holmes. Uh, go and sort yourself out. Uh, oh, it's hard just to mention a few. Uh, with, like, with Team UK, uh, there's so many obvious answers. But, you know, someone like Ed Brett, someone like Aaron Veal, uh, just I'll talk about Ed because you've already said what a great guy Aaron is. Um, yep. But Ed, Ed, you know, buys in 100%, gives it all in the games, really is so supportive and good with his teammates. Um, really does does go the extra mile with people and flares up when he needs to, which I love, on the pitch, off the pitch. Stands up for his teammates, stands up for his team. Um, loved that with him for Team UK. Really respect him for that as a bloke. Loved it. I can't overstate. Loved it when I played against him because he was one of the few other captains that challenged me uh, as much as I challenged the other captain and the referee. And uh, we would always say, like, me and Ed are pretty good friends, but when we played Raptors Werewolves, when we played Merc tournaments against each other, we would always flare up and chip off at each other um, and have, have a great time, have a great time doing it. Uh, so I'd say Ed's there. And then I'm trying to think for... Raptors is a tough one because uh, there's so many. Um, but just for how much he's changed, I'll probably say, probably say Trick as well, Dan Trick. Um, not to overstate, you know, the great work that like Cat, Lucy, Marsha as well. Marsha, like an understated, not doesn't speak up, but buys in, shows all the effort, shows those qualities. But like obviously, Dan took over for me in the captaincy, carried on the culture, you know, matured a lot. Like, I know we're similar ages. We both matured a lot as we grew up. But how he's developed, not just as a leader at Raptors, but as a leader at, at Team England, you know. He's one of the people that, that the team look to now to, to push them along. I think from the reputation Dan had as an angry little man kicking a tree, <laughs> uh, being, you know, a, a vital cog in the Team UK setup, a uh, Team England setup, sorry, is, is really quite special for me to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to point those people out and kind of give them the respect they deserve. Um, and also just to highlight that, although we spoke about everything that you've done uh, as an individual, as a, as a cultural leader, there are these other people out there. There are these other examples that people can look to. Yeah. Um, so it's good to share that awareness. Yeah, it wouldn't be much of a culture if it was me just shouting in a field on my own. Like, it only works with all these people buying in. And I, I am eternally grateful uh, to everyone who's been on a team with me that, that's bought in, you know, given me a chance, given the culture a chance. I'm, I'm hoping the success that we've had um, it is something that they are they are happy with. Yeah, true. Um, we're going to wrap it up there. But, uh, yeah, Jay, I know at this off-air, we were kind of like, we have no idea where this conversation is <laughs> going to go. And it is fascinating. We could generally talk for like another two or three hours on this because um, there is so much nuance to it. There's so much stuff that feels really obvious as well. Um, but it's good to kind of have this long form discussion and really kind of these things out. And as we were 
talking about before like there's there's going to be things that people don't understand there's going to be things that people don't agree with here but at the same time i i bet you everyone who listens to this will have one or two takeaways from this episode where they can go do you know what that that's that's really smart maybe i'm going to try that at my next training or my next tournament yeah. or wherever it is so it's been great to get really in depth in this topic of team culture and yeah thank you very much for two and a bit hours of your time oh, it's a pleasure to be here fraser a pleasure <laughs> to be here fantastic um so yeah i hope that you the listeners have enjoyed this episode um different type of episode from uh some of the things we've done before but we will ha- be having some more similar episodes like this on some different topics um calling on the knowledge of people across the community so listen out for those as and when alongside our regular people people episodes going through the journeys of different players and people the community and also our previews and reviews of tournaments now that we're back underway playing quidditch once more um yeah if you want to step to date with future episodes of total quidditch podcast uh please give the total quidditch facebook page a like uh that's where we'll be announcing upcoming guests um it is the end of the series we might have a little break we might not it depends how i feel really um in terms of organizing everything um also our survey is still up online we never took it down actually um but we want to hear what you guys want to have to say about the episodes um and maybe we can take on some of the feedback um see what you guys have enjoyed um and yeah make this more of a, a podcast for the community and not just uh yeah (laughs) me chatting to people for several hours about whatever i want to talk about anyway i'm rambling um yeah until next time keep yourself safe and live the game goodbye